Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of Mudville at the Movies. We are kicking it off with a second straight top 10 of the year episode, and this is the big one. We're doing our top 10 films of 2023. I am one of your hosts, Nolan Rabine. I am joined, as always, by Tony Brown. How are you, Tony? It's a beautiful day for the movies. And we're joined as well by a very special guest. You may remember him from our episode on Barbie and Oppenheimer. It is the great Seamus Mulhern. Thank Seamus, you. Seamus, how are you today, man? I'm good. I'm good. All the stars are here. It's going to be a beautiful night. Hollywood's biggest night. I think it was a pretty great year in film overall in 2023. It felt like a huge jump start, especially after the past three years had been so tampered down by COVID and studios not wanting to release films when people either might not want to go to the theater or when they just didn't know how to put it out with streaming and theatrical releases that uh, so many people seem to show their ass on in the past few years. But 2023, I think a lot of wins started to blow in a little bit of a better direction. We got a lot of big movies coming out in theaters. Of course, the Barbenheimer craze brought a lot of people back to the movies for the first time since COVID, but it just goes so, so much deeper than that. Seamus, is there anything that you know you felt might have been new this year in uh, cinema, or um, what were the highlights for you, and uh, what did what did you think about the year in, in movies? Um, I mean, I guess I just feel like it was a year where a lot of directors I really admired were releasing not just movies, but just like mo- like significant seeming movies in their career like a lot of my guys like i i I guess like 2019 kind of felt like this too where it's like you had the irishman you had once upon a time in hollywood where it's like big directors sort of like tarantino sort of described it as like a photo finish or something like that where it's just like movies are about to be dead like we got to release one more banger kind of thing and i feel like this is kind of the opposite i feel like between like top gun maverick and barbie and oppenheimer not just theatrical distribution is coming back but sort of movies are sort of like there's a sense that the relevancy is coming back a little bit there's a sense that like oh it's not dead it's just gonna continue in perpetuity so you know a lot of great directors are coming out with like significant works yeah i'm just excited about it it's a great year Absolutely, man. I had the same thought, you know, just seeing uh, quite a few parallels with 2019. You know, I I had thought of that as the best year that I had been, you know, Mm -hmm. tapped in for at least in terms of what was coming out and sort of in the uh, respective timelines of directors' careers and what was being put out. And, you know, both this year and that one, I feel like we have such a deep catalog and we have so many great films coming out really from all over the world and from a lot of directors who are either making their first movie or make sure yeah it just felt like every good movie that comes out is like it feels like a classic already we're at the point where we've let our lists marinate a little bit you know a lot of other ones came out like six weeks ago at this point because some people just love to jump the gun yeah what's the rush (laughs) exactly you know it's never too late to release a a top 10 list reverse shot the magazine run by the museum of the moving image they just dropped their top 10 list a few days ago i've seen quite a few this past week yeah so it's never too late just like this podcast one of the things that i loved about this year you know what you were saying nolan is true that the studios after covid seem to forget how to distribute movies and how they can make money 
And there's that element in sort of scary, wild, wild west times for moviegoing and yeah. people who love moviegoing. But I think things like Barbenheimer show us is that there is a demand to see movies. There is a demand to see our tours. There is a demand to see actors. There is a demand for original plots, stories, biopics, yeah. you know, the whole spectrum. And if you make it, they will come. I, I really, truly believe that. And uh, it was an exciting time. And I'm excited to talk about our top 10. Absolutely. Well, you guys ready to just get into it? Uh, you maybe want to start with a couple of uh, honorable mentions, if anybody has any, before we get into these? Yeah. Um, Seamus, do you want to go first? Yeah. Um, okay. So I guess the first honorable mention I should throw out, I didn't put it in my top 10 just because it's not a feature, technically. Um, but I loved Wes Anderson's shorts. That would definitely be on the list, like the Netflix Roald Dahl shorts that he did, um, Wonderful Henry Sugar, The Poison, The Rat Catcher, The Swan. Um, those sort of came out in four different days, and they were all really significant works to me. Like it, It's paired with another film that might be on my list. We'll see. It, they, they were just really unique, really outside the box. I think he's formally experimenting, formally experimenting with how he tells stories, um, there's a lot of direct narration to the camera, which is crazy and shouldn't work, but it does, uh, loved it. And then also one more, um, uh, maestro did not make the list, wanted it to make the 10 so bad just cause it would be funny to me. I think that movie slept on. Mm -hmm. I think Bradley Cooper is cooking with gas a little bit. And I, I went into that movie knowing nothing about Leonard Bernstein and I came out of it knowing nothing about Leonard Bernstein still, but <laughs> I knew a lot about love. And I knew a lot about life. That's the best review and, I can think of. And fame. And, you know, playing asses like the bongos. I, I, I love that movie. I love Maestro. What would Leonard Bernstein do? What would Leonard Bernstein do? Cheat on his wife with a bunch of hot dudes and then write West Side Story is what Bradley Cooper showed me. Dudes rock. Um, yeah, Bradley Cooper rocks. How did you feel, if at all, I suppose, that the um, Wes Anderson sh shorts like complimented um, Asteroid City? Did you think that those were like in conversation with each other in some way, like in a way that maybe like Wes was experimenting formally with them both? I mean, I think way? I think to say those two are directly in conversation. I mean, it's fair, but I think all of his films are sort of building on like he wants the artifice as much as possible. Like, I think he's playing with this idea of, like, showing audiences that what they're watching is fake while still showing them that they can be emotionally involved in what's happening, even though they know that there's, like, this wall between them. Even though they, they, they recognize, like, it's a cheap set, it's, like, a special effect. Ben Kingsley is literally talking to you, like, quoting Roald Dahl, like, from, like per quo or whatever. And you're still emotionally involved. And I think Asteroid City is kind of, like, a similar thing. It's it's very much about the nature of storytelling and things like that. Totally. Yeah. Tony, have you guys seen the, the shorts at all? Or uh, I watched the Henry Sugar one, but that is the only one of those that I've seen so far. And I've also not seen um, Maestro yet. Okay. Um, I wanted to actually mention, even before I got into mine, there were a few bigger films that I still have not seen. So those are not included on my list, but that's why those of the ones that I was going to list were uh, The Boy and the Heron, uh, John Wick 4 I did not get to, Godzilla Minus One, The Iron Claw, and I named Maestro as well. Uh, I think I got to most of the other stuff, but 
not everything. If anybody out there wants to pay me to watch everything, that would be sick. But we can't get to them all. I should watch John Wick Four tonight. Dude, honestly, yeah, that that, was- I was. Uh, you literally just <laughs> sent me like in a like a mind spin. Uh, Tony, what about you? Yeah, you, you got, got any honorable mentions? Yeah, you know what? I'll give a shout out to uh, Hurricane Billy Friedkin and the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, oh, R.I.P. Hell yeah. Love it, dude. Uh, yeah, R.I.P. for sure. Hurricane Billy. Um, yeah, and so a little bit, both I think the Kane Mutiny Court Martial was an excellent, tight courtroom drama mm-hmm. with a knock your socks off, middle finger to the audience, final moment for Billy on his way to the grave. Um, And then just a little bit of a cinema memory was that I went to the only film screening in the U.S. that the film had. So Like uh, theatrically? Theatrical, yeah. So uh, it played at the Venice Film Festival. It had theatrical screenings there. And then it had one screening, uh, members only, at Metrograph. Little advertisement there for (laughs) uh, people who are interested. It's only 50 bucks. Uh, for the whole year, you get $10 tickets and uh, an invite to see uh, the K-Mutiny Court Martial, among other films. So, yeah, to be able to experience that kind of courtroom drama, packed house, everyone was so into it. And uh, also a tragedy that it went immediately to streaming because that's a movie that I think my dad would want to go out and see. Even my mom and aunts and uncles, you know, it's uh, a and younger people, and it was the film, you know, the screening had, like, mostly people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's just, like, kind of one of those uh, intergenerational films that I think a lot of people, there's a market for a wide audience to see it, but uh, it's on streaming, so, uh, you know, especially if your parents can figure it out, it's on the Showtime Paramount Plus thing. Yeah. We could probably create a new generation of cinephiles just by showing a bunch of 16 year old boys william friedkin i think just videos of william friedkin oh yeah 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 he was the man um huge huge loss from the past year uh sorcerer almost made my top 10 first watches last week i was a little daunted just by like that's such a technically impressive movie that i feel like words almost you just have to see it Um, you got an honorable mention and then we'll dive into the top 10 i've got a few yeah um i could these are just a few that i feel like could have certainly made my list in any other year for the most part, certainly would have any of the past three years. Uh, these are a lot of movies that I respected quite a bit. Most of these are bigger releases, so I guess maybe that's also kind of part of why. You know, I feel like these didn't really need me to go to bat for them. But uh, I really loved Michael Mann's Ferrari. Couldn't quite put it in the top ten. But a lot of what we love about Michael Mann is certainly present in this film. Uh, the hyper-masculine protagonist whose drive to be number one tears his home life apart and prevents him from facing personal tragedy head-on. Penelope Cruz, uh, I think, gives the best performance in the movie. Uh, She and Mann do an incredible job of portraying her character in a way where the horrors that she's been through and the uh, apathy that she's met with are given the weight that they deserve. Uh, And at the same time, the final decision that her character makes or the final request is depicted as, you know, as cruel and 
selfish as it probably was. And I think that's a very impressive line to toe. Uh, it's, you know, it's a bit stripped down and less glamorous than a lot of other Michael Manns, but um, the human element is there, certainly. You know, especially, it's a, there's a very powerful punch with uh, the ending that I think means a lot in the context of Mann's work. Um, but that's my first honorable mention. I've got a, a couple other ones as well. Um, David Fincher's The Killer. Uh, I won't talk too much about because I bet we probably talk about it on the episode. Maybe. Yeah. Perhaps. <laughs> but yeah, that was another super impressive movie for me and a huge step up from Mank. Uh, but we'll get into that one. Blackberry, Matt Johnson. I, I got a shout out. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. It stands out in a year filled with a lot of weird product movies like Tetris and Flamin' Hot uh, because this is a comedy about a company that failed and that everybody recognizes as like the lead up to the iPhone, essentially. Um, And it's about the short-sightedness of grind-set mentality guys uh, and really depicted beautifully through one of the best performances of the year, Glenn Howerton, just one of my favorite actors, as uh, Jim Balsillie, the guy who uh, they get to you know, come in and run, the, run a tight ship as they're constructing this new device and uh, the director Matt Johnson gives a very funny performance as well and uh, Jay Baruchel is quite good and uh, yeah it's a really fun fun movie um, I couldn't put it in my top 10 but I would like to see Howerton nominated for an Oscar it, it, I, it's a hot take for me I guess but I think Baruchel was honestly better than Howerton in that movie really? I, I was I don't really I don't usually like Baruchel I, I was blown away by his performance in that. I really, I really got sucked in. But I mean, Howerton, obviously, you know, batting a thousand as always. One of yeah, our great actors. So good. <laughs> um, I'd like to give a shout out to the director too, Matt Johnson. Did you say his name was? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He was also in the film. He plays um, Jay Baruchel's best friend yeah, and yeah, kind of yeah. co-founder. Yeah. He's really devastating fun. role. Uh, uh, headband <laughs> performance. Capitalism, you'll lose your friends. Yeah, man. That's huge takeaway. That's the thesis. Mm. Um, what else have I got on here? Bo is afraid. I couldn't quite put on the list, but I really liked it. Uh, yeah. Seamus, we saw that one. We together. saw it. Um, I loved it right out the gate. Yeah, um, kind of softened on it a little bit, but still, still good. Not in my ten. Still great. Okay, really yeah, liked no, it. Not in my ten either, but uh, a very dedicated Joaquin performance. Certainly um, doing something in that that movie that most actors on his level would never even approach i certainly like it in the context of ari aster's career as well you know i i think people especially online can be super weird about ari aster like i think he's a very good filmmaker and yet he seems to receive quite a bit of very strong backlash um and like i think there's a there's validity to the complaints about the like uh elevated horror type thing that he sort of occupied that lane with uh his first two movies and then this one there felt like there was much more like tongue-in-cheek and uh 
sarcastic feel to it while like also feeling like like one of those other Ari Aster movies uh, but also you know with other elements added into this one that I feel like we hadn't really seen from him in the past and there are a number of scenes in this movie that I find myself thinking about quite a bit you know namely when he gets the phone call informing him of his mother's apparent death yeah. like that is one of the funniest scenes of the year one of the great scenes of the year yeah um, of course Parker Posey is excellent in it and uh, yeah I, I certainly wanted to to mention it I feel like you can't um, talk about 2023 without mentioning Bo is Afraid Nathan Lane should have been nominated or He's should be so funny. I guess because the nominations haven't come out He's yeah so good. Nathan Lane is giving an all-time performance in that um, yeah. and then and then my last two honorable mentions before we get into the list you hurt my feelings Nicole Hall of Center uh, we talked about this one on the main feed actually uh brody worked on it my thoughts on that are pretty pretty detailed already so if you want to hear that one uh go check out our episode on you hurt my feelings and then just this week i saw yorgos lanthimos's poor things with emma stone i haven't yet watched the curse but i'm certainly going to she is like one of the great actors of her generation like she is just on an insane run you know she's out there producing the new uh jane shane brun movie that's coming out this week so shout out to uh, emma stone she's fantastic and poor things and i had a great time with that movie yeah uh she's she gives one of the greatest performances of all time in the curse uh I'm she, so excited. The curse is great. <laughs> I think Nathan Fielder's a good actor. I think Benny Safty, obviously, great actor. Um, Emma Stone. It's like y- y- it's hard to watch it almost because it's like Nathan Fielder is like doing it like an Emmy monologue, and then it just cuts to like Emma Stone's reaction shots, and you're like, oh, she's the greatest actress who's ever lived. Like, why is he even trying? <laughs> like, this is embarrassing a little. But yeah, the curse rocks. I was gonna put that in my honorable mentions, but I, I had to like physically restrain myself. It's not a movie. Sure. Doesn't try to be a movie, but. Better than most movies that came out last year, I'd say. Love it. In a great year for movies. Shall we dive into the top ten? I think we should. Let's 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 hypothetically say we had a bottle of Josh in front of us and crack <laughs> crack the top open on this uh, bottle of top ten. Rip the Josh and get into the list. Yeah, shout out to my boy Josh. We'll have Seamus start us off yeah. as the guest. The uh, guest. Seamus, what, what is your number ten of the year? I get to sleep in the bed tonight because I'm the guest. That's true. The sleepover. He does. Get out of my room. Uh, number 10. Uh, it's a movie that kind of snuck up on me. Wasn't really planning on seeing it. I heard it was good. And even when I went to go see it, I didn't think it was going to blow me away like it did. Uh, number 10 is Ira Sachs's Passages. Um, nice. It's Yeah, it's a film about um, a bisexual independent filmmaker in Europe. Uh, played by Franz Rogowski, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And he has like a long-term boyfriend played by Ben Wishaw, and he cheats on him with uh, the star of his film, uh, Adele Exarchopoulos, I believe is how you pronounce it. I don't know. I don't know. But Long I, name. She's, she's in Blue is the Warmest Color. She's great in it. Um, it's just a really devastating movie about narcissism and uh, sort of the psychology of infidelity. Uh, kind of feels like a New York independent movie. It's the the director Ira Sachs is a New York filmmaker, but he, it's a European sort of artsy independent film. Ben Wishaw gives one of the best performances of the year. I'm really surprised. He's sort of the cheated on man, you know, the victim of the movie, I guess you could say. And it's just like a devastating performance. It's just a really powerful 
it, it, he has a powerful emotional force and but at the same time he's sort of a meek figure in the story and it's this really interesting contrast it, it's a film i've been thinking about a lot more than i expected to and it's a it's a really powerful character portrait a lot of great scenes have either of you guys seen it i did see it i, I think saw it tony, as well you yeah big, tony i think you were you were big on it do you want to get you were big on passages? yeah i'm a big iris Sachs guy this i was, was big on passages yeah i yeah. mean he's kind of he's actually moved he lives in the u.s but i think he's kind of making films in europe right yeah, now his which previous makes sense. film frankie um previous to passages fucking loved and had it in my top 10 a few years ago um and another great film but anyways i, I love the performances of franz Rogowski and adele x archopolis as well um i think franz uh is going to be a i mean he's a massive star i think mm-hmm. uh in the old-fashioned hollywood sense i think the camera is obsessed with him yes and i think he's gonna make that crossover into sort of international stardom that breaks into, you know, America's sort of a Tilda Swinton light kind of thing mm-hmm. where it's like his, his presence in a movie is a signifier that like, Oh, this is like a, this is like a serious real movie that you should keep eyes on. Right. Yeah. I'm into that. I saw the movie as well. I don't have quite as many thoughts on it as, as you guys do, but you know, I, I was also very impressed by those three performances. Uh, Adele, Mainly, I think I she kind of stole the show for me. I thought mm-hmm. uh, gave a very uh, reserved and powerful performance. Yeah, and, uh, it's a very acting driven movie for sure. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I enjoyed that one as well. Um, Tony, do you want to go in, in, into your number ten? Yeah, um, you know, I just realized something as you were introing me for my number ten. I have three documentaries on this list. Whoa! And that's the most I've ever had on a list. Okay. Um, so it was a big year for documentaries for me, I guess. Um, and so my number ten is called Spaces of Exception, and it's directed by Malek Rasamni and Matt Peterson. And Spaces of Exception is a, about three the day in the life of three native American reservations and three Palestinian refugee camps in the West bank and Lebanon. And the film was uh, filmed in parts from 2017 to 2018. And what the filmmakers did was they went to these reservations uh, and refugee camps and they filmed it in sections and then they would uh, make short films from their time shooting and uh, it was very collaborative so then also people were doing their own shooting on in the camp- reservations and the refugee camps um, and so they would screen what they had filmed for the people in the reservations in the refugee camps um, and so uh, the point of the film is to show a connection between Native Americans living in reservations and Palestinians living in refugee camps, and that there's a connection between both of their lives and existence, and that they're in conversation with each other. It's really well done, incredibly thoughtful, um, and... You know, the title Spaces of Exception, you know, uh, these two countries, America and Israel, were both founded on stealing the land and the displacement of people. So you're basically spending time with people who are sort of living in these spaces of exception. They exist. They just exist. And... 
um, they are living and, you know, and what, what can we take from that? Um, and so one and another question asked is like, what does it mean to be to decolonize? And that's sort of like a word that's really blown up and may or may not have lost meaning depending on who's talking about it. Um, but one of the big quotes in the film that stood out for me is a Mohawk elder who said, uh, no one should uh, ever refer to ourselves as a nation. We are not a nation. We are a people. Canada is not a people. The United States is not a people. A nation is just a corporation. They have no language that's common. They have no religion that's common. They have no culture that's common. They have nothing that's common. The only common interest is the land and what they can get out of the land. Yeah, that was my number 10. It was an incredible documentary. Beautiful, moving. Sounds like it, man. It's yeah. amazing. Uh, I don't know where you can find it. They're doing screenings, so if you look Spaces of Exception up on Instagram, you might be able to find a screening of the film near you. Did you see it in New York? I did. I saw it at Anthology Film Archives. Oh, okay. Yeah. What time of year did you see it? Was it I saw it in the... October. Oh, wow. So I saw it to I saw it like October 20th or October mm. 14th. And this was I bought my ticket months in advance cuz yeah. I was yeah. super hyped for it cuz I just I sort of knew uh, of one of the filmmakers a friend had recommended me this person and so i was just gonna follow you know follow and then obviously interest in the movie they announced it in august and then obviously a week you know later after the events in in october you know interest spiked uh in yeah. their film um and so yeah and 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 it originally came out in 2019 oh. um covid kind of like you know messed up the screening but when it screened it screened in lebanon you know and it screened on these reservations so it's a uh, you know, it sort of invert. It's not inverts. It sort of challenges the idea of like making a documentary about people and and their lives, and sort okay. of like how are you as a filmmaker, as an outsider, and then you know you're filming people's lives, and then you're submitting it to festivals, and you know is it exploitative? Like who is it for? Yeah, it's a commerce. ultimately, yeah. and it you know the whole commercialization of filmmaking. Yeah and the commercial structure. And so, I mean, the selling point of this film, you know, is that it is for the participants and the non-participants in the films and the people who just live in these spaces of exception. And so that they can see, and we all can see, the connections between the two. Well, I guess I'll get into my number 10. (laughs) Let's do it. Uh, Mine is also a documentary. Uh, Mine is The History of the Minnesota Vikings by John Boyce and Alex Rubenstein. How long is this? Is five hours long, right? About, yeah, I think so. I want to check it out. That's the one hurdle for me a little bit. And I I still haven't seen the Falcons one. Certainly recommend them both. Let me start, I guess, here by saying that the past decade for me has been dominated by John Boyce. Like, Mm -hmm. even even way before his recent run of documentaries like i remember his work for sb nation back in like 2015 and uh, eventually dorktown being singular and uh fascinating in a way that i had never really experienced before i can't recommend his um 17776 enough that broke all conceptions that i had at the time of like form and you know um barriers of what certain pieces of media can be and you know like what and how they can um 
communicate what what they have to say like it totally opened up opened my eyes when i was like 17 or 18 and then uh but even his like breaking madden videos and uh the dumbest boy alive about that message thread on the bodybuilding website was like one of the funniest things i've ever seen and just doing something completely original um and during this decade his six-part documentaries on the uh seattle mariners atlanta falcons and now minnesota vikings have gone a long way towards establishing a revolutionary type of storytelling and distribution i suppose and a new radical form of uh, documentary filmmaking like the history of the seattle mariners in 2020 was so major in part because everybody was stuck inside which created the ideal circumstances for a seven-hour youtube documentary um but like that was the perfect piece of sports media for that moment and you know if consider it i guess kind of a happy accident that it got its flowers as much as it did you know partially i think because of that while i don't feel like the falcons and the vikings documentaries have like entirely been able to recreate that feeling like it's one of those instances where i feel like that just isn't a fair standard to set both because of the singularity of the mariners documentary but also because like they're crafting stories about real sports franchises and about the things that happen to them and they're finding like individual players and coaches who have like interesting personal stories and the way that they're able to weave all of that into coherent narratives and like the way that they're able to find protagonists almost even in these stories like that just always blows me away like Bud Grant, the way that they depict him in this, like, I would give him best supporting actor, and he doesn't, he's dead. I mean, it's so cool. It's, um, I guess that's about all I have on it. Don't forget the Dave Steeb movie. Oh, of course. Did Dave Steeb. Did that come out this year? No, that was, um, that was, that was a little bit before, but that was in between, it was sandwiched in between all the franchises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the one on Dave Steeb, Captain Ahab. That was on my list last year. Um, that one, I think, was that one is the most visceral for me, I think. Just like the experience of watching that for the first time, if you don't know exactly what happened to Dave Steeb, is uh, truly incredible. Um, mm. And then you also have to shout out his documentary on the uh, Charlotte Bobcats slash Hornets, uh, The People You're Paying to Be in Shorts. That one is uh, a little bit funnier than the others, but like really, just they are on a run that nobody else is on but yeah history of the minnesota vikings very very good uh word number 10 for me i think it's the only documentary on my list uh but let's let's move forward from there seamus what have you got at number nine i i I don't have any documentaries i don't think except for the killer (laughs) which is about which is about me it's literally about me should um, I be scared? Yeah, no. Yeah, you should more, just turn on the Smiths. Well, he okay. he misses the shot, so you shouldn't be scared. I'm not good at my job. But uh, number nine, <laughs> I always try to put like one. I feel bad putting a lot of blockbusters on. I don't think I have too many like big, 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 big movies. But I think I, I always I feel like in my top ten, I always have like one 
sort of like bozo kind of action movie, but like with sort of a um, a sort of refined texture to it. And I don't mean to insult the movie when I say that. Uh, number nine for me is Godzilla minus one. That's number eight for me. So. Number eight? Okay. Word. Well, so you, you, you get it. it. You you felt the magic of it. I, I, I saw it um, after a bad week at work, um, really just exhausted. Didn't really like it that much. I kind of fell asleep at parts, but that was just because of the exhaustion. I saw it again with my girlfriend. Astounding. Astounding film. Cried my eyes out. I, I clapped. I, I was like Peter Griffin crying and clapping in the theater at the end of the movie. Um, I think what I was expecting when I first saw it was sort of the cliche kind of... Oh, I, I don't know. Are, Tony, are you like a Godzilla fan at all? A little bit. I I I don't have much of a basis in it, but right. I kind of know the idea. I know the history of it. I know that it comes obviously from the ashes of the nuclear bomb. And yeah, it's, obviously it's a nuclear, nuclear cautional, Would, cautionary tale. The, yeah. That's mainly the first film. And I really, I love the first movie, but my understanding of Godzilla as a franchise and the appreciation for the sort of Toho movies is like sort of the, the theatrics of like Godzilla and Mothra going at it. Godzilla and King Ghidorah fighting like sort of the WWE ness of it. And Godzilla minus one is really not interested in that at all godzilla is the only monster in the movie unless you count the japanese government it's it's sort of a film about the horrors of you know post-world war ii japan uh just the devastation and, and godzilla is sort of the personification of not just hiroshima and nagasaki but almost like staring down the barrel at like a recovering nation in in a way it, it, it's just like a melodrama nolan do you know anything about the plot of the movie i don't i haven't it's, seen it yet yeah. uh, it, it's a kamikaze pilot and he chickens out he he doesn't he it's the curb episode basically yep. <laughs> but then godzilla attacks like his whole team and he still do, he doesn't attack godzilla and he's the only survivor so it's like double trauma for him and the whole movie is about him sort of trying to restart his life but also knowing godzilla is still out there and that he might need to f- fucking do something about it that's awesome it's so badass it's like the top gun of this year it's the same sort of thing where you're like if i actually sat down and analyzed the politics of this thing i would like get mental illness i would just like <laughs> not understand anything but in the moment it's just such a profound like you know standing up and just hugging the person next to you just like it's a really great uh movie going experience I, I, it's the it's the most um, movie ish movie I, I've seen this year. Really engaging blockbuster. It's a Japanese language film. It's subtitled, but I'd recommend it to anybody. You know, you know, it's doing really well at the box office yeah. too, which goes to show that I think people are willing to go out there and watch a subtitled movie. Mm-hmm. Another thing about this film. Uh, Takashi Yamazaki is a VFX artist by trade. And yeah. uh, that's kind of how he made his bones in uh, Japanese film industry. And the movie looks beautiful. And the, it's a beautiful. The budget sp- is allegedly fifteen to sixteen million dollars. That's it. Well, he, he, and he actually, made it look like yeah. two hundred fifty million. I. It looks like an Avatar budget movie or something like that. And like, I think he came out and said like fifteen is crazy. Like that's way too high. Like it would have been way less or something like that. Right. So it's even less than that. That's and what people f- are saying. I, I saw a tweet someone saying that it was like ten million possibly, yeah. um, and that that's. I mean, it's just every he, he left it all out there. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I wanted to bring up about the film, or just him as a filmmaker, um, two of my favorite big budget Hollywood movies: Godzilla minus one, and then John Wick Chapter Four. Yeah, um, 
were both directed by people who came up through the systems in a different trade. Yeah. So, like I said, one's a VFX artist, and of course, Chad Stelhesky. I don't know if that's stu- yeah. a stunt. Yeah. He's, Stahelski. Stahelski. He's a stunt guy. He's a stunt yeah. guy. And so, you know, that was kind of like a thing of how people made their bones in Hollywood. It's just like a costume designer kind of works their way up or a production designer and then they make all the costume period pieces, you know, in the studio system. Yeah. Or, um, you know, stunt doubles becoming action filmmakers, you know? And so, you know, that was a way, it's special effects people, James Cameron, um, all the people who uh, worked for Roger Corman and then sort of like, you know, became working in other capacities before becoming filmmakers. And, you know, that's still a great way to do it and a great way to find new talent and new directors instead of some studios who have these IP address, these IP addresses, these IP intellectual properties, and uh, they decide to pluck our tours into their um, property films and yeah, flagship like films. Yeah, a set way of doing things who as opposed do to things like, yeah. but are, are there for the paycheck, but we've yet to see the money, the like one for you, one for me thing. We haven't really quite seen that. We've just seen the film for you and then, you know, uh, we we just don't really know what happens. So, and I'm not against our tours also climbing on a um, you know, a big franchise movie, but um, you know, these John Wick and Godzilla are you know both um, you know, franchise films now um, done by uh, Hollywood tradespeople. And uh, it trades artists, and it's 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 pretty great. And last thing about uh, Godzilla minus one, there's so many Jaws references. Yeah, throughout the entire film, it's a Spielberg movie. Basically. Yeah, it's yeah. a Spielberg movie, and one that I really really liked is there's a scene where they're trying to figure out what to do with the Godzilla, and the guy who kind of has the plan of what they're going to do, he walks up. Uh, to the microphone, and this whole scene mirrors the Jaws town Like meeting. the city hall, yeah. Yeah, and instead of nails on the chalkboard like Quince does in Jaws, this guy's microphone malfunctions makes a loud screeching noise that yeah, everybody like, freaks out about, and so it's like very much uh, in... Uh, there's just so many allusions to Jaws. It's awesome. Yeah. In a Godzilla movie, who knew? And it's the same thing as Jaws where it's like there is like a grand monster threat, but the big threat is like the mayor. The big threat is like, you know, sort of like the people who aren't able to do anything about it. Yeah, I loved it. Really rousing movie. Uh, Tony, what's your number nine? All right, my number nine is Yelling Fire in an Empty Theater. Uh, This is a film by Justin Zuckerman. It's a very small film, a $2,500 $2,500 budget. Um, and first, before I talk about the film, something that kind of goes along with the film, uh, Justin Zuckerman is a filmmaker and he wrote a manifesto that you can read online on TalkHouse uh, and it's called Striving for the Amateur. And this whole article uh, he seeks as a filmmaker and a lover of film to reclaim the word amateur, 
which means lover of. And it's this idea that you can make film for the love of film. And you can make film as a hobby, just as someone can paint as a hobby, just like someone can play guitar and music as a hobby. Now, is it a little bit more challenging? Because if you're, you know, you're making a film, it takes a lot of people's time. Yes, and those are, you know, tricky things that you have to navigate, but it's still worth doing and you can make films in that way. And what he does is make a brilliant film, uh, about a girl who moves from Florida to New York City right out of college, and she wants to be an artist, an illustrator, and and because of the size of the movie, it really gives this sort of gritty realism of what it's like to be a recent college grad in the city of New York, especially millennials, Gen Zers, you know, um, and getting absolutely smacked in the face with reality and then all the interesting people and struggles that you uh, go through as you're being, you know, basically smacked in the face by New York City. And I feel like that's something that, especially if you have any sort of inclination towards the arts creativity um and you're not just here to like you know work on wall street or something i think it's it's an extremely relatable film and that's my number nine where who could ever see themselves in that yeah <laughs> no, right it's very triggering for me too when i watched it i was like oh you, fuck you, you got a problem with guys who work on wall street <laughs> i work on wall street so yeah. and um, i actually am jordan belfort yeah <laughs> I'm really glad you talked about making film just for the love of it and about like amateur filmmaking as being about the love uh, because that ties directly into my number nine, uh, which is a split entry between Boston Johnny and Heard She Got Murdered, uh, the latest efforts from the creative team at Moturn Media. We did uh, episodes on both of these movies, Brody and I did. Um, we got Matt Farr on to talk about her she got murdered a couple weeks ago uh that was really a fun interview um he's the sweetest guy in the world for one but also what he's doing uh should inspire anybody like us who wants to go into the world of film but finds themselves increasingly alienated by the competitive and unrealistic and undemocratic traits of corporate studio you know hollywood filmmaking to talk to Matt and to hear him talk about what he does to read his book, The Moturn Method, I think can be incredibly inspiring for young filmmakers or for people who want to go into cinema but um, are trying to challenge the uh, preconceived notions that have been taught to them by Hollywood. Um, if you didn't hear those episodes and you don't know, Moturn Media. They are independent, self-financed filmmakers from Massachusetts, creating a the North Shore, Massachusetts, yeah, where yeah, I'm yeah, from. Yeah, creating a democratic communal uh, media empire across multiple mediums. Farley also records songs, and he's put out over twenty-five thousand of them. He just hit the milestone this past month. When we were talking to him, he talked about like six different movies he currently has in various stages of 
development, you know, whether they're about to be shot or they're just ideas that are in his head, but he knows he really wants to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just love hearing people talk like that and like digital filmmaking and just like digital cameras are just the revolution of people being able to shoot their own videos i think you would just naturally assume that a lot of people like matt farley would sort of come around and would try to do their own stuff but um these guys are really doing something that seems to be singular and yeah i mean it's it's in very it's very inspiring in a way that um doesn't have you wanting to you know find yourself climbing up a ladder that is about to be dropped out from under you as as you're on it i I don't know if you haven't seen these these two movies yet i mean get on them boston johnny is a dramedy about an anti-hero tv salesman who's just a total sociopath who like steals a dog and then tries to uh, duel the owner over the rights to the dog, doesn't want to get paid for his efforts promoting these products. He just wants to get paid in hash browns. And he goes around in his catchphrases all the time, but he says it in a way where it's like, all the time! And he says it like a hundred times throughout the movie, all while the score is playing like the same little basic, uh, but, but Boston Johnny, but, 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 sound like over and over. And Matt described it when he came on the podcast as an assault. Um, and I think that that's so funny, especially when you take into context like the last few movies that they did which um heard she got married was more like serious for them and i think you know they started getting a lot of like comparisons to other filmmakers like i asked matt if he had seen people comparing him to hong sang su and it seemed like he was just like yeah okay that's fine with me does he know who hong sang su is like he'd never seen any of his (laughs) his movies but he was aware of um, the comparisons comparisons between them and i tried to like articulate what that was it's just like lo-fi like dialogue driven kind of yeah just like stuff that on the surface would seem like it couldn't be any more different and then when you look at these two guys they're actually doing some, something pretty similar yeah. um so and then to make these movies directly after that feels like almost a like refutation of uh anybody who thought that they were trying to like find more of a mainstream lane he's like okay i'm gonna make a movie about this abrasive tv salesman that's just like a huge piece of shit and it's still the most like charming and funny movie of the year like it takes some time certainly to like acclimate to their stuff if you've never seen it before but like ideally within like 15 minutes you can kind of get what is happening and you can find yourself on board uh and like heard she got murdered too like especially after having seen the first like it it feels like you know he's certainly saying i make my own movies still despite these formal experiments and uh what i do is i produce stories in which there are four of me by the end and uh yeah it, it it's just pretty wild and um these are really a lot of fun fun movies i believe you can find them on vimeo certainly boston johnny you can and uh, you could order the blu-ray from uh, gold ninja video so huge shout out to those guys love what they're doing uh and that is my number nine of the year seamus do you want to get into number eight yeah my number eight is showing up kelly reichardt saw it at the new york film festival back in January, 
and I'm very glad to see it's still in my top 10. Um, I love all, I haven't seen all of her films. I've seen like half of them at least. Uh, and I love every single one that I see showing up is probably my least favorite of hers that I've seen, but it's still like phenomenal. It's Michelle Williams. She's a, a college professor sort of working on as like an art professor. Um, and you know, it's just about her living her life and kind of struggling. She's sort of a curmudgeon. Um, she's sort of, her landlord is also an artist and there's sort of like a jealousy, a rivalry between the two. And it's just sort of about the ups and downs of a creative life which I guess is sort of a, a similar theme in the last three movies we've been talking about, but it's just a movie about an artist um, who's just constantly dissatisfied and thinks her art isn't as good and just like trying to find the, the satisfaction in that, um, which I, I found personally very relatable, very beautiful. Andre 3000's in it. He plays the flute. Um, Judd Hirsch plays her father. Hong Chow is the landlord, and she's incredible. She's one of my, my favorite performances of the year. And there's sort of an autobiographical element with Kelly Reichardt, the fact that she... Are you guys Kelly Reichardt fans at all? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I didn't see that one yet, though. Okay. That's another blind spot for She me works year. as a college professor, um, you know, just to, like, pay her health insurance and stuff. And it, it, it's really fascinating to me that you can make a movie as good as certain women, at, like, as, like, a one for me in, in, in between two years of, like, being a college professor or something like I, I, I found that really inspiring and just, yeah, it, it's just beautifully shot, beautifully composed. Um, the production design is very detailed. The writing takes some cliches, I think personally in the ending, which I won't get into for spoilers, but I, I loved it. It's a movie I'm still thinking about a year after seeing it. Tony, have you seen showing up? I did. Yeah. I loved it. Loved it. Okay. Flutes by Andre Benjamin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great, one of the great opening title credits. Yes. Yeah. Big, big, big applause moment for sure. I, I knew nothing about it going in too. So I was like, oh, great. What did you guys think of the Andre 3000 flute album? Did not sure. listen to it. I was okay. ready Any, for it because anyone, of yeah. showing up. That's why. <laughs> anyone I, who says they listen to it is lying. You know, <laughs> no, no. I did you listen, listen to it. it? I okay, did. Okay. Yeah. But cool. I was playing like 2K and I was like, yeah, that's the only I had it in the yeah. background. You play of. it while you well, well, listen to it while playing Zelda or something. Oh, like you know that. what it that's was actually? Way. I was like opening baseball cards and it was just very like soothing background yeah. music in the past. If you're yeah. doing like a task, I mean, I can't. It's a hype. And that album, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty wild. Hiking it's album, like you have to, yeah, you have to really commit to it. If what you did, what did it come out? It came out the same day as uh, Coronto, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's why I didn't listen because I was like, why would I listen to this? Danny Brown, yeah, this is gonna be course. hype, and it's like a depressing, like, I'm not a drug addict anymore kind of album. And you know, like, allegedly, you know, the music world allegedly was shocked that. Andre Benjamin released a jazz flute album, except me, the <laughs> yeah. cinephile, because I saw showing up and it said flutes by Andre Benjamin. Well, that's and all I was he does so now. ready for it. And then when they said he has a flute album out, I said, of course, why wouldn't he? Let's fucking go. Yeah. Apparently he just plays it all the time. He plays it on set and that that's what he does in his spare time. It's just, just play the flute. He's great in the flute. movie too. He's, he's great. He's, he's great in, in charge movie. of the yeah. uh, the kettle or yeah, it's the, a fucking oven for pottery, it's like a fermenting so for dumb. sculptures. Yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend to know, any to know what shit. he did, but he was sort of a love interest between the two of them. Really, really good, charming. Uh, he was in High Life too. He's he's got a good career blossoming in acting. Uh, yeah, I, I I loved it. Showing up would would highly highly recommend it. 
Keep an eye on that Andre 3000. Keep an eye on that kid. We'll see where he goes from here. And t- Tony, your eight was Godzilla minus one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, minus one. So should we skip to Ma- number yeah, seven? Yeah, yeah, or do yeah, we yeah. go Unless to you, your I've, eight? I've got a number eight here. That okay, cool. So why don't I just take an eight slot just quickly since we mentioned Godzilla yeah, yeah, minus one. It. I want to re-mention John Wick chapter four as another uh, fantastic film. Uh, a three-hour tour de force exercise and maximalist action banger um and a lot of homework was also done by the filmmaker at the beginning there's a great reference to one of the most famous match cuts in cinema the match cut of lawrence of arabia sure yeah. uh, they do it in john wick four as well keanu reeves is there and he's banging on his like punching bag and lawrence fishburne uh, lights a match to like light a cigarette and then it cuts to the desert just yeah. like in Lawrence of Arabia and I was like let's fucking go John it, Wick it feels like one of those like I know Chad Stahelski's gonna make Highlander or whatever but I think they knew it was gonna be the last John Wick movie at least for a while and they were just like let's just fucking do everything let's just go all out and not gonna lie I you know my two favorites are one and four I would say yeah and Two and three especially, I just got to a point of exhaustion. But here in four, I somehow broke through the exhaustion of all the action and the violence. And I just soared into a new plane of consciousness and uh, was enjoying myself and just completely blown away. I liked John Wick 3 a lot because I saw it in theaters with some of my friends from high school and we're all big NBA fans and that movie opens with him killing Boban Marjanovic in the library with a book and that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, no, shout out to to the John Wick movies. I would sure. love to take a day and just watch all four of them. Like how people watch Lord of the Rings. I feel like I don't that, know if I had the strength. I don't to know do if that. I like I, it sounds like That's a great uh, terrible idea, but I really in my head I'm like, damn, that feels right kind of. Just a bombardment of sound and strobe. Uh yeah, I'd John, be into it. John Wick rules. Shout out to my boy Keanu. Number eight for me, uh, I think this is a movie that we have all seen at this point, so I imagine we all have some thoughts on it. Really impressed me quite a bit. It is Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. Based on just one sentence out of a Martin Amos novel, and it starts out where we see this family and all that we know about them at first is that they live directly outside of the Auschwitz uh, concentration camps where genocide is being uh, industrialized for the first time. There's a very like horrifying scene as we start to realize who these characters are. Um, the man in particular is the one in, who is tasked with overseeing the concentration camps and like finding logistical ways to kill as many prisoners as they possibly can. So like you'll see scenes of guys in a boardroom, you know, having these low key discussions just about like cliche term that everybody used to describe it as banality of evil, you know, that kind of thing and um 
like goes so much beyond that into like the humanity and like how the family unit and dynamic can be exploited and weaponized um to help abet that same evil like uh sandra hewler's character i mean she might have had the best year of any actress first of all but she's the wife of this character and she's like put in charge of gardening and like upkeeping flowers and uh seeing the over the plants and like feeding the kids or whatever yeah she's the the mother she's the mother like they describe her in one scene as the queen of auschwitz she describes herself as the queen of auschwitz the shot in this movie that's really going to stick with me for a long time was the shot of the two of them walking together as they're you know planting seeds watering flowers and overhead you see past the fence is the like steam coming out of the concentration camps like as you know people are being burned alive inside and the film never goes over the fence so of course you only get like the people's lack of reaction to what's going on around them and the fact that they are directly next to history's greatest crime i mean uh it has it asks a lot of philosophical and um anthropological questions i guess just about like human nature and how we uh are able to contort ourselves to live our lives in a way where we're able to turn our backs to these things like and i saw this just at a very important time um, while the u.s is committing genocide right now against yeah the Palestinians. basically and it's like you know i'm watching a movie about characters who are ignoring something happening under their eyes and it's like you know we're not directly next to it. It felt very personal to me to be seeing that, you know, in a country that is actively preventing the rest of the world from stopping an ongoing genocide. Similar to your number nine pick, or no, similar to your number uh, 10 pick, Tony, I think this is a movie where its time of release has added a lot of very important context. And I think with the zone of interest specifically, um, it makes a lot of the nuances of the movie seem a lot more poignant than they already were. And like the ending of this movie in particular, like the last 20 minutes are stunning. And, um, you know, you could hear a pin drop in the theater. And uh, as I would also have to shout out some of those like negative sequences of the girl um, hiding the apples at night. The only real sense of closure you get to that is towards the end when you hear the sounds of a Jewish prisoner being shot for fighting over an apple. So it's just another one of those things where it's entirely up to the audience to infer, like, one, who this character is, two, what she's doing, why she's doing it, what the impact is that it has, if any. I suppose also just, you know, the fact that it's shot infrared negative as well, like, says a lot about, you know, the fact that they aren't able to include this even, like, in the main story, like, of a movie. Like, calls to mind a lot of, like, sort of the eternal Holocaust questions in regard to cinema, I think. One of the moments in the film that stood out to me was uh, kind of a parallel with another film uh, with The Act of Killing, the documentary by Joshua Oppenheimer. In both films, in uh, 
the zone of interest, you have Rudolph. Is that the main character's name, yeah, I believe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he starts dry heaving, dry throwing up, and nothing comes out. And he goes to the hospital and tries to get himself examined. And they say, nothing's wrong with you. And then the film kind of, towards the very end, there's one final sequence of dry heaving. And the main character, the main subject, because it's a documentary in The Act of Killing, who... if those of you who don't know what the act of killing is about it takes place in indonesia and joshua oppenheimer follows these people who committed uh, genocide in indonesia in the 70s but they're still in power so they're celebrated in heroes till this day and they're filming a the documentary is about these people who carried out the genocide directing their own videos in celebration of how they killed these people and so the main subject in the film also dry heaves at the end of the film. Um, and so it made me think of evil and how no matter how committed you are to doing unspeakable acts of evil and how hardwired you are to doing that, uh, your body is almost like rejecting you. Yeah, there's a human impulse not to do Yeah. That. Yeah. And it, it, even even though people still go so far and go to the sheer hollow dark depths of evil that the body is sort of is revolting against you, yeah. you know, and I, I thought both of those moments that, that I thought those were interesting parallels. Yeah, I, I, I loved it when I first saw it. And obviously, it's still a very visceral movie. I think it's sort of in comfort. There's two perspectives with showing atrocity in film. Obviously, there's like the Mikhail Haneke kind of like, just don't show it like this is not entertainment. Like, don't put this in a movie like film is inherently as like an exploitative format. Um, and then there's the Spielberg thing of like, if we don't show it, like it's going to be forgotten. And I feel like zone of interest is sort of a conversation between like these two sorts of perspectives to the point where I'm almost like, I almost kind of reject it on that front where it's kind of like a cinematic, like I'm not touching you kind of thing where it's like, it's going so far to portray the sort of visceral horror of like these sorts of events and like being on the outside and like to its credit, it is extremely visceral. I, I walked out of that movie sick to my stomach and like, you know, showing Rudolph sort of, I don't want to say his struggle because like his struggle is the least of the fucking movie, but you know, sort of that internal war with yourself, like the humanity versus inhumanity. Um, but it, it's kind of flattened for me a little bit in retrospect, just because of that, just because it feels like it's trying to achieve a balancing act to the point where I'm just like, okay, like what, what is this? Like, what, what are you trying to say personally? I loved it when I first saw it. And I think, you know, the production design obviously, and just the way they made it is so, interesting uh just the, the almost improv kind of through the house or whatever i guess what what i would say to that just like specifically towards those like uh characters in terms of like trying to play out a balancing act with them is that i, I feel like towards the end it really goes something shifts very hard toward and like the film i feel like it shows its hand more towards the end and it comes off of the rails just a little bit in a way where like you know i i think of the scene where um sandra hewler is telling the the girl like who just puts her sandwich out at like the wrong time or something that oh, yeah. like she could have her husband spread this girl's like ashes across the field yeah 
or um and the whole the whole f- uh, not to spoil it not that this is like oh my god you can't go into this movie with spoilers yeah. <laughs> but like the flash forward yes at the end was very it was horrifying a little bit yeah and just you know very powerful yeah so i, I can't totally discredit the movie it, it's obviously a beautiful film very powerful I'm still thinking about it, and I would still recommend it to people. But yeah. it, it's a it, it's an uneasy sit, which is by design. I but. think also with you, you have that line towards the end where Rudolph, where he you know he he's looking over at a crowd of people at the party, and he says to his wife on the phone, "All I could think about was how I would gas everybody yeah. in the room." Yeah, and it's like, oh, this man has been completely dehumanized and turned into a killing machine. Yeah, poor um, guy. <laughs> really sad yeah it, but it, and it's like i feel like the film does such a good job with those two characters and really i think in particular with those two lines like of showing how that amount of power like even though like they themselves are not really in any positions of power they've just been put in the sort of faux positions of power over other people who intentionally are being oppressed and murdered but just like procedural thing where like you know he controls his employees and she controls just these two or three people how that can go to their head and how like humanity can just sort of like automatically if, if exposed to the right circumstances um be uh sadistic right. in, a, in a way that yeah. um you know that's just part of like human nature all right number seven (laughs) number seven okay uh number seven asteroid city gotta give it up for my boy wes he's done it again as someone who likes basically all of his movies except for like isle of dogs he's he's done the thing that we like when he does uh playful artifice uh movies about storytelling uh you know very eclectic um interesting cast Um, sort of subtly devastating movie about grief and the power of storytelling to articulate, you know, grand emotions. Have you guys seen Asteroid City? I have, yeah. Yeah. Um, It didn't totally land for me, honestly, but when I saw it at first, and I think that part of it for me was um, it felt just a little too perfect in a way where, like, what Wes is trying to do now, I think, is, like, interrogate some of the structure of his movies and just, like, why he makes them, why people watch them, why we, like, respond to them or whatever. Mm -hmm. And Wes, like, it felt a little little too polished for me in, in a way where like it seemed like this was his covid movie it just felt like wes anderson had too much control over it and i know that that's kind of a weird thing to say about the director of a movie and especially one who takes so much pride in like uh symmetry and the like vibrance of the like the the toy it's like a cilantro kind of thing yeah i mean you kind of just it connects with you or it doesn't it connects with you or it doesn't and i think like that certain it certainly works for me sometimes. Like I do like Wes Anderson. Like yeah. I was a big fan of the the French Dispatch. Um, but a lot of why I liked that movie is it felt like he was branching out a little bit. Like I think of in, in particular of like the sequence with Timothy Chalamet like on the bike where it reminded me a little bit of like Wong Kar Wai even. I didn't feel like those risks I guess were being taken as much in. Oh in well, Asteroid I just City. disagree. I think it's like. 
a huge step forward for him almost like i, I don't know I, I feel like he's conveying things under the surface more more and more like his scripts i think are getting more layered a little bit i definitely agree with you there i think every character in that movie has like their own interesting story going on like jeffrey wright's whole monologue is like one of my scenes of the year uh when he's going through like his life story on the stage and things like that like and that's just like that's a scene you could have cut uh that's a scene it contributes to the themes and stuff like that but i just i I, you know obviously like it's not moving the plot forward but it's just such a fascinating character moment it's just a fascinating guy in a portrait of a man and like how it relates to edward norton's the the author's sorts of that was another thing too like the layer of edward norton's character and you sort of get glimpses into this this guy's life he's sort of like a closeted gay man he has these relationships with all the actors and just seeing like watching the movie and being like is this the author saying something or is this like the actor trying to push something through um or is it wes or is it wes or is it (laughs) and it just kind of made me think differently about movies and art in the coming months uh, than uh, I would have otherwise. That I like totally respect. And something else that I felt about Asteroid City that I think kind of plays off that as well is like I connected much more to like certain stories in this one than I did to others. Like some felt to me personally like kind of like fat. Like I didn't re- I didn't play too much into the whole like Maya Hawk storyline with like that. Oh, I like that romance with the like kids singing. And like I totally get why that appealed to a lot of people. It was mm-hmm. just like didn't really work as well for me personally. Like. Yeah. I really liked the scenes with Jason Schwartzman and uh, Scarlett Johansson, I think. And then, of course, uh, my favorite scene in the movie is the one with uh, Margot Robbie, where she comes in as uh, the wife who played my actress. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that worked so well Beautiful. and that that scene hit me very very hard and um like even you know as, as clips from the movie were being like reshared after it it was became a, a, available online like i think it even hit me a, a little bit harder and i was like you know the fact that i think i did not connect with all of this this movie ultimately makes the margot robbie scene hit a little bit like harder for me and uh tony so- did you see asteroid city I did, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. I don't really have any thoughts. Yeah, on yeah, yeah. That. <laughs> no, no, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I thought um, there are certainly there's certainly stuff in there that I like a lot with like the. Uh, henry sugar thing for me like i mean there was stuff in there that i enjoyed but ultimately it wasn't anything that came together for me in a way that like i connected to or that i felt like was particularly like yeah. major for Wes. like right. I, I i prefer french dispatch to this one I suppose. okay that's fair french but, dispatch is underrated yeah uh t- tony what's your number seven my number seven is uh directed by my favorite filmmaker living today uh fallen michael man no. <laughs> let's go uh fall i love michael man no, I'm, I'm new to michael man to be Ooh, honest we're, we're, we're not gonna talk um, about we're not him gonna later, talk about think. him Definitely. but uh you know uh yeah so um you know my favorite filmmaker is aki kurismaki and my number seven is his film fallen leaves hell yeah which Great is movie. a romantic comedy it is the fourth film in kurismaki's proletariat trilogy um <laughs> Um, and so little thing about Aki Kurosaki, if you didn't know, everything he does is a trilogy. So he has the proletariat trilogy. This is the fourth film. He has a refugee trilogy, uh, which is still incomplete. He's had two films, La Havre and The Other Side of Hope. Uh, he has the Leningrad Cowboys trilogy. He also has like 
works of literature trilogy where he's like his Hamlet. He has um, I, he is one of the Tolstoy or I'm I'm just rambling, oh, no. right? Yeah, <laughs> one of the Dostoyevsky. Oh, he like okay. adapted a Dostoyevsky novel, so oh. he's a guy with trilogies. Anyways. Yeah. If you've ever wanted to get into Aki Kurismaki, you should get into it now. It's getting a lot of, uh, it's doing well at the box office, so it could be playing in a theater near you if you're not living in New York or Los Angeles. Yeah, it and just started streaming on Mubi too. It's on you- Mubi. Great, you can you can stream it at home on Mubi, and you know one of the things that I love about Aki Kurismaki, I actually wrote him a letter and I dubbed his films the cinema of humanism. And community. And what you'll always see in his films is, uh, whether it's the Refugee Trilogy or the Proletariat Trilogy, is an unflinching uh, communal solidarity amongst the actors, amongst the characters in the film who are all living in an incredibly harsh, brutal world. Um, And even though you live in that kind of world, uh, there is a community around you that does care for you, and you know that's what makes life worth living: is caring for each other and taking care of each other. You know, lending someone the coat off your back. Your coworker gets fired. You're and you threaten to quit as well and stage a walkout. You know, these are things that you know none of like. There's no. Um, some characters had this philosophy and now they've changed throughout the movie and they've had a change of heart. In Aki Kurismaki's movies, they are unflinching in their ideology and their actions. So they just do. They just do stage a walkout in solidarity with their employee who's about to get fired. They do just lend a jacket to someone who is in need. You know, They just do watch the bag of someone who is leaving for a while and has to go somewhere and uh, can't take their bag of their possessions with them, you know? Um, and and that's what makes Gikur's Maki and all of his films and characters so special. So Fallen Leaves, it's 87 minutes. I recommend it. Did you see the sandwich, James? Yeah, it was great. Um, what, what did you think of the uh, the dead don't die scene? I thought it was great. Um, Laugh my ass off. And it's a little, you know, Jim Jarmusch and Aki Kurismaki are lifelong friends. Yeah. I think Jarmusch was in a film of his in like the early 90s. There's definitely similar qualities in their work for sure. Um, Have you you seen it, Nolan? Not yet. Um, It's really good. Learning that it's streaming music to my ears. Very sweet. Heard it mentioned on a couple of uh, other podcasts this past week. I'd seen it on a few top 10 lists, and it seemed like something that would be really right up my alley and like something that I could potentially really connect with. Uh, I look forward to seeing it and look forward to seeing more from Aki Kurismaki because he's not really a filmmaker that I am particularly familiar with. So, yeah, I'm very excited to hear more about that i'm very glad that it was on one of our lists and i look forward to seeing it my number seven is a fire from christian petzold this was actually my first petzold film a fire to me really beautiful film uh it feels 
something like a Romare plot where it's like these few people are on vacation in this beautiful part of the world, um, but they're letting petty insecurities or just trivial problems like get to them and prevent them from enjoying the haven that they currently find themselves in. Personally, I prefer this to something like Romare because I have never really been able to connect with him on like a personal level, namely because his protagonists, I just find them incredibly annoying. They're Eric always, Romare? Yeah, like they're always <laughs> talking about their like strict moral codes and about how That's like... Sick. Yeah, it, to an extent That's it is. Cool. Yeah. But it's like they're always talking about why they like can't sleep with a beautiful woman because she hasn't read Kant or whatever. That's cool though. Which, uh, everything you're saying is so fucking. Cool. It's really funny <laughs> on like some level. Like I think when Godard does something like that, where it's like they have these tongue-in-cheek yeah. characters or like in masculine, feminine, where it's like he's going to complain about the aspect ratio. Yeah, in the well, theater. That, that's like, those were those guys. They did I, shit like that. Oh, I, I know. They, they did sleep like, with girls because they like she didn't. Read God. I know, and like I, I fuck with that, and I find it very funny. With Romare specifically, I feel like I'm spending time in the mind of one of those like trad cath Twitter accounts, and like I don't know, that's just a personal thing for me. Right. But Petzold like is doing something very different, where like the character here is like equally flawed, and I feel like self-critical in a way that succeeds, uh, and that I could relate to myself, but like. Petzold is doing something where, like, again, like, this character is letting these these petty insecurities and, like, personal grudges over stuff that really doesn't matter, like, prevent him from enjoying this beautiful spot and pursuing this gorgeous woman who, like, keeps trying to get his attention. And Paula Beer, by the way, like, one of the performances of the year. I mean, I personally would put her up for supporting actress she's great she's so so good in this movie i think like for a certain amount of time like the plot is pretty entertaining as well like he comes to the spot with his friend and then they find out that paula beer is also there and she's like having really loud sex with this guy that keeps them up and that's why this guy is mad and then his friend and paula beer's hookup start hooking up with each other and then like that leaves the two of them and like it's very like french or just i don't know li- literary in a way that uh and speaking of literary all of the stuff with like the novel that the protagonist is working on club sandwich is so fucking funny and it's like <laughs> the scene also where he lets her read his novel only to find out that she's this like literary genius and scholar going for her doctorate and is not just this like ice cream vendor is the most like oh you got got scene of the year like i was clapping like a seal watching that it was so goddamn funny uh but yeah a fire very very good beautiful movie great Um, movie you know trench new wave inspired but for the time of climate change and ecological disaster and uh you know, if we let climate change get too bad, we won't have these European auteurs going to get on their Romare shit anymore. So let's just save the environment. Why not? Seamus. Love it. Number six. Yeah. Number six, uh, Ferrari. It's just a movie about an awesome guy who just sort of is good at his job 
and I think you know it's a good movie for sort of like the the the, the people of today to see you know a real professional just a guy good at his job you know uh only good things happening to this guy who who's dedicating his life to his work. Yep. Um, no, but total romantic. To, total romantic. You know, he's got two families, so you know he loves love. And you know he's uh, got time for them both. Yeah, he's got, he makes time for the family, which, which is really important for the men of today. No, uh, in all seriousness, you know, I, I love Michael Mann. Probably a lower tier Michael Mann for me in the grand scheme of things. But this just had all the shit I love. It had like you know, sort of the the intense uh, hyper masculine protagonist whose curse is being like too fucking good at his job. His he, he you know he's too much of a fucking provider to deal with this shit. Um, Adam Driver is just like perfect for man, perfect for man, dude. Just like this ultimate like hyper dedicated personality. Penelope Cruz, as you said is fucking great so i won't go too much uh shailene woodley i mean she's trying uh it wouldn't be a michael mann movie if there wasn't one like horrifyingly obvious flaw in the movie but you just gotta like steamroll past it um the racing sequences some of the most you know pulse pounding shit of the year uh loved it and then you know the the crash scene is one of the most disturbing things you'll ever see in your life so just go into it with that mindset um, Nolan, you've seen Ferrari. Have you seen Ferrari? Too? I have, and I want to talk about the race sequences yes. too. Yeah. Um, as far as race movies about go, about how good they are. Yes. Yeah, and I, I want to say that I think the sort of definitive cinema uh, racing film is Grand Prix, which yeah. uh, is John Frankenheimer mm-hmm. and his collaboration with uh, Saul Bass, who's very famous for opening titles. And yeah. they collaborated on the opening sequence of Grand Prix. It's about 25 minutes. And Michael Mann definitely went back and looked at that opening sequence in that film and had that influence how, you know, what, he what, did what's the, the racing sequences. In what way? Ferrari. Like, what? what would you say is the big takeaway from it i i would say like the construction of images and sound as it relates to um operating a heavy powerful oh, yeah. vehicle yeah. and racing it the animalistic quality or whatever of the yeah animal. it's just like the construction and sequences of images and cutting them uh, in a sequence you know um you see in i mean in grand prix they they use multi-screen a lot of times uh, throughout the races. So right. you're seeing, you know, multiple, multiple vantage points at once. You're also, they're also cutting on the rhythm of the car. And that's what he does in the opening sequence. Adam driver, Michael Mann uh, is uh, Adam driver gets into like one of his cars, one of his Ferraris. And he like, he changes a gear in the car and there's like this beautiful cut that goes, and it's not even a race. And yeah. he, he, he just has the, th- he gives you the feel of what it's like to be in the car. He doesn't show you how fast it's going. No, it's He's, just like the rumbling and just sort of like the cl- the, the 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 claustrophobia almost right, of being yeah. in a car like that. Exactly, yeah. and th- and there are a lot of ways to to sh- to show that. And you know, I, and I think watching Grand Prix uh, is a great blueprint for any racing. Per, for any person to make a racing film. Yeah. Uh, last word on Ferrari. It's no black hat, but what is? <laughs> you know? Um, 
I'd also want to actually shout out. I mean, we mentioned, of course, like the crash scene that it's is, the most powerful thing I've seen this year. Just uh, yeah, that one one section really movie. was amazing. Yeah. Um, but I'd also want to mention the other crash towards the beginning in the like test with the test drive sequence. Yeah. yeah, just the way that like Adam Driver doesn't react at all when the guy's body goes like flying. Yeah, out it's of the awesome. Car. It just, like I thought it was a like test dummy. The how impersonal he was about it. Mm-hmm. Just like, well, he let his guard down. He crashed. He died. It's how it works. And just how cutthroat like yeah. that guy was in that industry is. Which is sort of like a great motif in Michael Mann's work. Because oh, yeah. obviously he is one of those guys where it's yeah. like I don't I mean I don't want to speak too badly of him, but I feel like if like a stunt guy died on his movie, he'd be like, damn, okay, uh let's get another one. Let's go again. Heat two, take three. But like I, I, I feel like it's this love hate thing of like obviously he's looking at it from this perspective of like, damn, this is so inhumane, this is terrible. Absolutely. But also like he's achieving greatness and there's this sort of internal war of like the cost of greatness versus like the the casualties of it which is beautifully articulated with penelope cruz who's sort of like this figure uh cast aside in order to make way for the success of enzo ferrari uh great movie i read heat 2 kind of a mid book but every scene in that movie i'm like damn this is gonna be a fucking great movie this is gonna be when when I read when half I, of it myself. When I don't Are have you to, big Michael Manhead? He's oh, he's yeah. my I'm, he's my guy. He's Love my guy it. for sure. He's on my Mount Rushmore. Uh, he's he can't write prose to save his life, but you, as long as you're reading this paragraph and thinking like, damn, this is just going to be a shot of Adam Driver just walking and not thinking about his entire life, it's going to be fucking <laughs> gas, dude. He's going to cook for sure. Oh my God. Uh, Tony, what's your number six? All right, my number six is May December by Todd Haynes. That yes. is my number five. Oh, great. Well, yeah. let's talk great. about it right let's now. Talk about let's it. talk about it. Did it. not make my list, yeah. but... You know what? It actually would have been one of my honorable mentions had it not been on my list when I was writing those, only to be bumped at the last possible minute by a film I have not yet gotten to. Okay. But let's talk about (laughs) May-December. It's on both of your lists. Okay, yeah. So May-December, this is one of the only Netflix movies I saw this year in the cinema, because if it's... If I... If you don't screen it in the cinema, chances are I probably didn't see it. What's great... Okay, so... May December is loosely based on a teacher student scandal. A woman has an affair with a 14 year old boy, gets pregnant, goes to jail, has the kid, and the boy and uh, the teacher end up getting married after all and raising the kids and raising a family. Um, and so that's kind of like the jumping off point with this story. And one of the things you need to know about Todd Haynes is that he is a student of the filmmakers Douglas Sirk and Rainer Warner Fassbender and, uh, very much into image, sound, meaning, and, uh, complex stories and saying more than one thing in a specific image and creating a story that, uh, or creating a film that is not easily digestible in one viewing. Yeah, it's both funny and horrifying in equal measure. Yeah, and and one one time you can watch it through, it's completely horrifying. Another time it's a laugh out loud comedy, you know. And another time it's about a um family pulling apart at the seams. And so so you have uh, Julianne Moore as the teacher. Um, you have 
and and this other part of the story, which I didn't even mention, is Natalie Portman plays an actress who is making this her starring vehicle that she's producing and like this is going to be her oscar bait film she thinks right and so she's spending time with julianne moore because she's going to play her in a film and she wants to learn about her life you're dealing with natalie portman is kind of like a self-absorbed actress there's a whole rabbit hole of acting discourse the psychology of it the sociopathy of it the self-centeredness of it. You have the Julianne Moore character, um, who I think is just an infant almost. Um, and well, so is Melton. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, so <laughs> I was going to talk about Melton as well. A total loss of innocence and youth, and therefore is also an infant. So they, you kind of have these two. They, they're they're contrasting a little bit, but also on the same wavelength as mm. they're also raising children. Um, who seem to have more of their shit together than their parents yeah. uh, and an incredibly fucked up situation. And so, you know, again, you're asking all those questions. How do I respond to what is being shown to me on the screen? And I, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I think it depends on uh, each time you view it and new things that you pick up on or seeing things in a new light. You know, it's fucked up. It's dark. It's campy. It's uh, psychologically fascinating. May, December, Todd Haynes. One of the things I find totally fascinating about that movie is how it like builds itself up as this thing you might think would be a little more campy, like you said, or just kind of like based on this like juicy relationship drama of this like story of something horrifying and like philosophical almost, and then like revisiting that twenty years later, and then it becomes so much of a study about like method acting and that's not what i was expecting at all and honestly i i went into that movie not knowing what it was about even i saw some of the like previews and uh images from it and i thought it was a movie where julianne moore and natalie portman were like lesbians it was like a persona type of thing that was my first impression no there is a huge persona influence on it for sure this sort of the isolated nature of the island and For like sure. that sort of thing. But no, it is kind of like this weird tabloid commentary kind of thing on Hollywood exploitation, tabloid exploitation. And yeah. just sort of the way we kind of look at like true crime. I don't know if you guys have watched Riverdale or anything. I haven't. I, this is my first. I saw the first season of Riverdale. Okay, but you didn't see any Melton. And I Melton did, does he come in season two? I've never seen the show. I think he comes in on like season six or something, like uh, way okay. late in the game. But this is my first Melton, uh, one of the performances of the year. I'm not no even doubt. gonna say best. It's just like this is a performance that's gonna be talked about for the rest of our lives. Like the way his body looks, the way he moves with sort of his head hung, and like the way he. I know it's not him, but it's like the writing for his character, the way he talks. There's a part where he like has sex with. Uh, I'm not gonna spoil the movie, but there's a part where he. Uh, cheats on his wife girl is asking if he's done that before and he's like yeah you know well i've not really i've had crushes but i haven't really like acted on it and it's like the it's just it's a 14 year old talking it's the the saddest thing in the world the line this is what adults do yeah this is what adults do and there's a part where he's sitting in bed and he kind of it's a deceptive dad bod where it's like he has the beer gut but the way he's sitting it kind of looks like baby fat it looks like like a 10 year old boy sitting 
just his stomach popping out in like this way. It's 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 tragic, but ultimately it's the funniest movie of the year. He's also texting someone throughout the film. Yeah. And who is he texting? Yeah. You know, is it a woman he's having an affair with or mm-hmm. he's just like kind of just flirting yeah, via text he like a 14 year old? He needs an escape. He, he just needs, has yeah. like something yeah. going on yeah. no matter what it is. There's no there's nothing dis- well, I don't want to say that because they don't conclusively say it, but you get the vibe that there's not really anything deceptive about him, and he's kind of acting like a child yeah. in the world in spite of working as an adult. Just complicated, messy, great movie, great movie. Something I would add, to to the Melton hype train was just very much just one of my like memories of just something that my dad said to me about um pulp fiction is he was always so impressed by john travolta's cocaine acting he was like he's so good at acting high and i felt the same way watching charles melton smoke weed on the roof in may december like specifically when he starts having the like panic attack and he says to his son like i can't tell if uh we're bonding or if i'm creating a bad memory for you in real time (laughs) (laughs) i was just like that line in particular i think tapped into something something that i had never seen in a movie before yeah. and like it's so funny and it's so tragic no at the it's same so time. funny but like at the time when i was watching i almost like teared up a little bit because no, it's just too. like the most like yeah. horrifying <laughs> it's because yeah oh my god it's such a weed mindset but it's also like in the context of the narrative it's like what a I, I don't know if i'd put it like best picture but that's my favorite screenplay of the year okay. it's just beautifully written Every line of dialogue means something else and also is just like contributing to the overall idea of the movie. Um, Natalie Portman, so funny in the movie. Yep. I uh, really like the kids it a lot. are great. The kids are really good. Julianne Moore's son from a previous marriage is really funny. Mm-hmm. The music supervisor scene is great. Yeah, the person, Sammy Birch, who wrote the screenplay to May December, uh, Pen the screenplay for the famously shelved Coyote versus Acme, <laughs> which is gonna Looney fucking rock, Tunes dude. Movie. Yeah. That movie's gonna kick Sounds ass. like it's gonna rock. Yeah. So imagine good. shelving that, no. and now they're gonna sell it because they're Couldn't just selling intellectual properties now. So Looney Tunes, which is synonymous with Warner Brothers. It's in all of their cartoons yeah, and the water brand. towers and all. It's their brand. And now fucking for a buck, they're just going to sell this film to Paramount Plus. Because why not? Or they're going to fucking merge. Who the fuck knows? Wow, so then they have it again. Sorry. God damn. Is that rant again? Okay. What is your. My number six. six? Okay. My number six of the year is Anatomy of a Fall. That's my number five. Okay. Let's go. Okay. Well, let's talk about it right now. That I also just missed my list. Just that was like list. my number 11, 12. I of. really, really liked this a lot. I think that so funny. the 2020s are shaping up to be the decade of the French courtroom drama. Some of our best female auteurs are over there just constructing elaborate murder trials, and I think it's fucking <laughs> sick. Yeah, Kane Mutiny, Court Martial, Oppenheimer, Killers um, of the Flower Moon, sort of. Saint Omer uh, is one of my favorite movies of the 2020s. First, like, I loved that so much last year, and I mean, this I felt like checked some similar boxes while also, like, this is funny in a way that san omer is certainly not like they're not doing the same thing but do you, do um, you think she did it i don't know no i 
this is yeah. not to be like men think like this women think i feel like all the men came out of that movie being like she didn't do it and all the women were like i don't know like every woman i've talked to about that movie like kind of low-key thinks she did it That's but like should have done it so i have something to say to this yeah i don't think it matters it doesn't and no, i don't it think doesn't it matter re- it's relevant so i yeah. saw this film in uh july for some reason i got a pre-screening for their marketing company, marketing companies, you can sign up on a mailing list and go yeah. to screenings and fill out a survey. So watch the movie, blown away, and we're taking a survey, and I'm there with my friend Kate McGee, and we start, and literally the second question they ask you in the survey is, do you think she's guilty? And I'm like, oh no, I hope that's not what the marketing team is going to choose to market the film as Which a they who did. didn't. Yeah, and I was like, oh shit, this film might be in trouble. So I'm thinking that, and as soon as we open it, my friend Kate goes, well, that's a stupid fucking question. And literally the whole like four or five rows around us just watched the movie, just like everybody erupts into laughter. And I don't think it's irrelevant. I mean, people can say, I'm not going to say it's not irrelevant people are gonna fucking say whatever they want to say it's very the reason why i say that it's not relevant is because um i think she was influenced by uh this essay by a uh yale legal scholar named robert m cover he was a uh yale legal professor yale law school professor in the 70s and 80s and he wrote a essay called violence in the word and his thesis is that legal interpretation the court system takes place in a field of violence a perpetual violence from the judge and the prosecutor and the defendant especially um and uh the defendant in this case sandra holler's character is violently picked apart publicly for the entire country and even world to see and view and spectate yeah, it's on. it's commodified. And yeah. um, the situation uh, is, is, is brutally violent for all parties involved. One, because, you know, it doesn't matter if she fucking did it or not. Like, this is, this is what she's going through. And then at the other time, you know, her husband is dead. And that's violent as well. Imagine not killing your husband and then he's dead and you're clearly innocent and then he's never coming back no matter what happens guilty or innocent he's never coming back there's there's pain and violence there because he may or may not have been murdered but it's just it doesn't it just inflicts violence on everybody around and it doesn't offer healing and that is what robert m cover says in his essay and he thinks that that's important for everybody involved in acting out the legal system should know in the back of their minds as they're partaking in the legal system. With that said, do you think she did it? Uh, <laughs> it. Do you think she did it? Do you think she did it? I no, mean, no, absolutely not. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and I and I thought absolutely not. Kind of, I thought absolutely not from the jump, and so yeah. and that that's why it became even less relevant of a question. For yeah, me. yeah, yeah. And, and and the reason why I brought this essay up is because there's a uh, 
French philosopher that I follow. His name is Jeffrey de la Gossonaire. Jeffrey de la Gossonaire, and I just like butchered his last name, but I did correct myself with the French pronunciation of his first name. Uh, and so I follow him, and he like gave his 10 favorite books and essays on legal scholarship. And this was number one, and it was an essay, so I just like pulled up the PDF like three or four years ago. And I think he and Justine Trier are in similar uh, intellectual circles, and that's why I think that that piece may have had an influence on the film. And I think yeah. that's at the heart of the film to me is the um, – cyclical violence of the legal system itself but part of the thrill of the movie is the fact that you the audience themselves are commodifying this tragedy like part of the the twisted fun of the movie is that while these ideas are being articulated you the audience at least for me i was enjoying the sort of like red-a-tete of like did she the the sort of push and pull of the facts and the speculation kind of, mm. and I think that crescendos really well with. The, I mean, the sun is great in the movie, obviously, and not to spoil what happens, but the, what the sun does at the end of the movie really kind of uh, made me reorient myself in the way where it's like d- did or did not. It doesn't really matter, and it kind of like crucifies the audience in a way a little bit sure yeah and i i felt like um for me it didn't even feel like it was really like ambiguous or too much of a cliffhanger no it felt no pretty conclusive that like she did not do it at it, the end it, it was honestly like i mean i get why they have to market it this way and like i don't think it would like be going to the oscars like it is now sure. if they didn't have that did she do it did she not do it kind of conversation right but i was like for sure and i want to say that i thought it had the chance that marketing campaign had the chance to possibly backfire and especially the trailer the trailer is brutal because it it comes off as like a hitchcockian murder mystery yeah but they're one of the trailers that i was watching and i was like if you don't sell the movie like in that way in a trailer like audience members could be disappointed now luckily i think the film is so fucking good that some of the yeah it's uh, the parasite of this year where it is like the festival darling that sort of has crossover appeal where it's like, oh, no, this is like a real movie. Like, this is like this is an entertaining, like really engaging kind of thriller. No, it, it was really shocking to me that that was even like a debate at the end of the movie. I was like, right. oh, no, of course she didn't do it. But then it was like, oh, OK, I see the argument, I guess. But. Yeah, no, I really just, I don't want to call it a popcorn movie, but it was much more like surface level entertaining than I thought it would be, like while conveying these sorts of complicated ideas. Really loved it. Milo Machado Grenier also I think would probably be my supporting performance of the year. I oh mean, yeah, that, that was incredible. Definitely. What he did. Uh, the I, dog this also, is, also yeah. the supporting dog. dog of the year. <laughs> Messy, yeah, unbelievable messy. goat <laughs> performance by the dog. Absolutely, yeah. And the and the child actor. This is like my big take. This is one of the mo- most powerful child actor performances I've seen. Yeah, since definitely. seeing a young Jean Pierre Leal in the Four Hundred Blows. Wow, um, high I, praise. And yeah, I, I honestly I don't think I've and and just personality in front of the camera and young Jean Pierre Leal films. Um, I really do. I think that do, that kid is absolutely dynamite on the screen. Those Stranger Things kids are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really, they're just a fucking powerhouse. 
All right, so where are we? Where, is, that was, that was your the number six? end of number six. I just also got to, I have to mention, it's so cool that the steel drum cover of PIMP is so prominent yeah. throughout the movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, Wait, did you see 50 Cent's response to it? No. Someone fucking tweeted about the song or whatever, and then he quote tweeted, and he's just like, this is why I tell the younger generation, don't worry about just trying to top the charts with a hit. Make something that lasts. <laughs> <laughs> that's such it's a not even his fucking song it's the cover of his song yeah uh, that's yeah. such a funny thing to say about get rich or die trying yeah. <laughs> <It's like, laughs> which is also yeah that's super fucking funny yeah but seamus what's your number five my number five is made december no, so we oh, can right, go right, to right, tony's right. number okay. five my number five is uh anatomy of a fall oh, oh so okay going straight so to my number, number five. five what's your okay, number five wow we're Back going again. Right through number five number five for me the holdovers the holdovers good movie alexander payne perfectly good movie i love this so much uh we had eddie averill on to talk about election like right before we saw the holdovers and we talked a lot about alexander payne on that that episode and that was a lot of fun so if you haven't heard that one go check that out but i saw the holdovers like pretty soon after recording that episode so and it was right after also i had watched a couple of Payne's movies for the first time like um sideways i saw earlier in the year but just just recently i saw uh, about schmidt for the first time and then yeah you know went went right into the that an alexander pain year a little bit you yeah. had a painful year house of pain yeah house of pain <laughs> so yeah i mean and i felt like this one you know he's a little bit kinder to his characters i think where they're not as caricature as broderick yeah. and reese witherspoon in election but it's also less of like pop art i think this is more like kind of like th- this is certainly a like p- parents movie like i almost said Dad, it's a movie you can see with your parents yeah definitely. absolutely a movie you can see with your parents like this and a lot of people also are reading as kind of like a play on 70s movies as well and I think that that has led to a few criticisms that I don't really think hold up, which is like that it's too sentimental or that it's it's trying to do something that's just flashy or fake in a way that's just like empty or maybe pretentious a little bit. And I totally disagree with that. I mean, Divine Joy Randolph, of course, steals the movie like she's yeah. going to win the Oscar. Like I'm not saying anything new there at all. And then Dominic Sessa as well. Those two performances alongside the established presence of paul giamatti i mean i think that is a dynamic that all of them play so perfectly and um just like also one of the most entertaining one of my favorite giamatti performances ever like he's such a gem in this and he's um, the man yeah and like the christmas party scene in particular stood out to me like that felt pretty major you know both with divine joy randolph scene in the kitchen where she's drunk and like mourning her son in a way on, on a level that we had never that we as the audience had not been keyed into yet because she's so reserved for that like first hour all while paul giamatti learns that the woman he's sweet on is actually married and like that and so she's like, great too I oh mean, she's she was, so good she was so and, good like, in that movie all of his like dreams are or romantic 
dreams with her like has crushed in that moment and dominic sessa is downstairs with the woman's niece like and i love the way that like it turns in two seconds like you like he's like kind of annoyed and just being like he's not super thrilled to be there and then he like gets the sense that she might be into him and it's like snap just quickly changed to like uh 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 and he's so like nervous and like it just he becomes a kid like instantly and i thought that was such good acting on his part like and just the movie is full of stuff like that this is the most rewatchable movie on on my list i think like i could i could come back to this anytime this might become like a you know christmas or holiday staple for a lot of people particularly those who feel a little more like isolated or like pressured by like the you know scrutiny that comes with family time during the holidays or the expectation to be with family at the holidays like especially in this case like when your family either has died or is making a calculated effort to not see you you know it's a it's a very powerful movie i think one thing i want to add is that uh, i am personally an alumnus of an all-male catholic high school Mm. um Mm. and i had a history teacher who was basically Mr. Hunnam. Yeah. And so it really brought me back, um, and especially at the beginning of the movie when Mr. Hunnam is passing back exams with insults and threats um, to the students. Uh, It really sent me back to high school, and F-plus was an actual grade that, like... (laughs) some of my classmates got and there was another grade called F over zero and <laughs> parents were absolutely furious what is F at over him. Zero? Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> it's, it's, I don't even know. I can't even remember what F over zero was. It was just like so bad, but you completed it. It was for papers. <laughs> yeah. So like, it was like you, you wrote the paper, but it's so bad F over zero. So, anyways, parents would be furious at him. Um, and the one critique I have with that is that my Mr. Hunnam was tough as nails and one of the hardest teachers, but also one of the most beloved teachers in the school. So, like, that was, like, the one critique I have because I was like, I actually think Mr. Giamatti's character would Mr. Hunnam would have been like a school favorite, maybe, but like well, it's just yeah. a modest critique. It's a combination like of like his demeanor and just sort of like how he thinks of himself. Like he's right. sort of a down on himself, alcoholic, incel, right. which was I, which is the teacher that I had as well. And so you know, <laughs> yeah, and and because he was so well beloved, he said some shit, and definitely he there were a few minor detractors usually brown nosing straight a students who only cared about like what college they were going to get into all four years of high school like those were some who like had a problem with but everybody else would like defend this teacher to the death and like i remember when he got suspended for saying shit so like my mr hunnam famously told a student that he'd rip his scrotum off oh my with a God. rusted nail. What? <laughs> what did the kid do? The kid was comp- bitching about a grade. Yeah. Like he was a bitching about F over zero, which it was so fucking funny and he got suspended for it and I wasn't in the class where it happened, but I was in the class where the principal came in to like call him into a meeting, and then he was suspended for a week. And my Mr. Hunnam said it was one of the great joys of his life to sit 
in the room with the headmaster of the school and the headmaster like pulled out a piece of paper and said to him, did you tell a student that you'd rip his scrotum out with a rusted nail? <laughs> and he told us this and like when he got back from suspension and we like all died laughing and like all the insults that he had, like to us as like students, like he would just like rag on us all the time. And we would, we would literally, um, write them down in our notebook and then read it back to him at the end of the year. So yeah, <laughs> Mr. Hunnam, great character. I loved him. Giamatti going to win the Oscar. Maybe, maybe. He's is win. this his He's time? Win. It's his time. What struck me about the character, like right off the bat is like one of the, the first things I thought about him was I was like, Oh, this is a, a teacher that if I had him in school, I would have like legitimately hated. Really? But also, yeah. No, it's a joy. Yeah. In, in my opinion, it's a joy, but it's it, a personality here's thing, though, the thing. for sure. It's, and then it, in retrospect, you realize like, oh, he was he, he had a lot of problems. He was a, he was exactly, a good person fundamentally. Like, it's a joy to watch the character. And for me, it was a huge compliment to the filmmaking that I was able to say, if I knew this character myself as a teenager, I probably would not have liked him at all. But I like watching him now. And that makes me feel like an adult. So yeah. thank you, Alexander <laughs> yeah. Payne. <laughs> yeah, because we all are that guy now that, we, yeah. now. now that we're past the age of like 17 or whatever, you become <laughs> that person or whatever. We're um, all just, I we saw <laughs> I saw someone tweeting about Paul Giamatti where it's like, it's crazy like, so many like I feel like people in their twenties who are like into movies and books kind of look at Paul Giamatti as a guy, or at least Paul Giamatti characters as a guy that they could become, just bald, fat, oh, like yeah. fucking sideways. Depressed, oh my god, alone, sideways. Yeah, sideways is me right now, and it's just like it's crazy, and it's like you watch it and you're like, damn, but he still has like his own kind of swag a little bit. He's still like there is some like a charm to this guy where it's like, yeah, like. You can still be a little sexy if you're if and be like a book nerd <laughs> at like a like a private school in New England or whatever. Like there there is a charm to it. You and can I, give every single person in your life a copy of Meditations, Marcus Aurelius, and yeah. you can still be a sick ass guy. I ha yeah yeah <laughs> that's badass. Dope ass teacher. Yeah, you you could be the one guy who's nice to the devastated lunch lady at the school. You know, you could be a good uh, a, a pleasant soul. Um, I, I love the holdovers. I've seen it three times now. Whoa. Yeah. I watched it again with my parents and I showed it to, uh, Maddie again, just cause I was like, you gotta see this shit. Gotta watch the holdovers. Yeah. You know, January 4th, just in time for the holidays. Yep. You gotta throw on the holdovers. <laughs> uh, last 20 minutes never work for me. Really? Really don't. Okay. That's the one move. That's the one time where the artifice just kind of like, I'm like, Oh, we, we're just fully doing scent of a woman right now. We're just fully doing like the campus movie, which is fine. But I'm just like, yeah, the, the first two hours. Really? I can understand that, I but think. I'm still watching it. I'm yeah. still rewatching it in spite. Uh, number four, uh, boy in the heron, uh, love Miyazaki. I love a little, uh, late style. I love when a director calls their shots and says they're making a final movie, which never really happens. <laughs> I mean, Fableman's, it's like, oh, if Spielberg came out and was like, I'm done, it would be like, yeah, okay, of course, but, you know, he's going to keep going. I'll, you know, you don't get to that level of success as a filmmaker if you don't feel like a wor workhorse and, like, you know, work constantly and die halfway through making your last movie or yeah. something like that. Aki Kurosaki says the same thing. Yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah. I'm done after this. He said that, like, so many yeah, times. Yeah, because you just get bored. And, you know, Boy in the Heron is, like, uh, I feel like he meant it as a last movie for sure. 
but I'm so glad it's at least he says he's making more movies because it's just like if if it was for sure his last movie, I'd be watching it through the lens of like what is this him saying about his life and his career? And it is, but I feel like to take the story of that movie and kind of apply it one to one to be like, oh, this is a metaphor for his son. This is a metaphor for it really flattens what it is. And it's just a parable about like obviously it's a coming of age story. And it's just a film about life, and it's just about legacy. And uh, have you you guys have seen it? I have not seen it yet. Okay, I have not seen it yet. It's literally like they they did they released a one minute trailer. So I want to be as vague as possible with Mm -hmm. the plot. But it's just a film about like um, accepting responsibility, accepting your own humanity. Um, It's a young boy who goes on a magical journey after his mother dies in World War II. A um, lot of very obviously autobiographical elements, but also a lot of fantastical stuff, as you could expect from Miyazaki. Um, the creature designs are, I don't want to say hit or miss, but the first hour of the movie, I was like, yeah, these are cute. These are fine. This is what I'm expecting. And then they show some fucking parakeets. They got parakeets in this movie. And I immediately, I almost like stood up right in the theater. I was like, <laughs> oh my God. I, I need like a doll of this or something. Like I want to be five years old so I can get a parakeet doll right now. And they're evil. They're evil little bastards. I'm not really a big anime guy. Miyazaki and like Cowboy Bebop are like the two things I like bridge over for. And I think this is one of his finest films. Really all encompassing. I've only seen the sub. I want to see the dub with Robert Pattinson's voice. Boy in the Heron. Check it out. Boy in the hair. It's a terrible title. How do how do you live is a way better title. No. Oh. But Oh, that is a better title. Way better title. How do you live? But you know. Is that what it translates to in Japanese? Yeah, it, it's based on a book called How Do You Live? And they didn't okay. start calling it Boy in the Heron until like two months ago. Oh, that's lame. Very lame. That sucks. Uh it's a fine title, but I, I just how do you live is hard. Uh just quick side note based on what you said about the whole like, you know, this is my last movie type thing yeah. that you don't get. Can I just say fuck this whole ten movies bullshit from Quentin Tarantino? Yeah, Quentin Tarantino, you're so you're lame. on fucking Mudville watch, bro. You're you're on fucking thin ice, <laughs> That's bitch. Damn right. Um We're coming for you. The, yeah, this level of hand wringing over his I want I care how much about how people see me and I like don't want to make bad movies like all of his favorite directors apparently did like yeah. I feel like that has already hurt his legacy at least in my eyes more well, than a who like who gives a fuck about legacy exactly who but, fucking cares dude but we're, it's like we're gonna go into clearly the fucking he does sun. yeah his like, entire world is the last fucking 50 years of TV directors and shit <laughs> exactly who only he knew, knows he, he cares about the legacy of fucking the producers of Gunsmoke like who gives a fuck dude move on the amount that he clearly cares about that like especially if it's to the extent that he's going to stop making movies when he clearly has a lot more in the tank just so people don't think that his last movies are bad that loses more respect as like an artist than any hypothetical run of like shitty late period movies i hope the fucking movie critic is so ass dude i would be glad if it was great but i want it to be ass just so it's like yeah you see what you fucking wrought you see what you fucking did (laughs) now that's the way everyone's gonna remember for no i want to see the movie critic i do Uh, or if it's ass just so he 
can't go out on it. And he yeah. just co- comes back and he has to like prove himself again. I want to. I, I want to see a Star a Trek. A lot movie. of a lot of hate right now for Quentin Tarantino. No, I love it. Tarantino's love, my guy. But he makes great movies. He's kind of an idiot. Did you guys read Cinema Speculation? I have it right there. Yeah, I did, did. you read it? Yeah. It, what what a fucking stupid book Yo. that I read cover to cover in <laughs> two days. Oh, two two days. Two literally. days. Yeah. Loved loved every second of it, and then I put it down, and I was like, what a shitload of fuck. <laughs> What a fucking asshole. No, yeah. I, lo- I love Tarantino. I'm not too bothered by his 10 film proclamation. It's like whatever floats your boat, man. If yeah. that's what you want to do, I don't think too much into it. And if he makes an 11th film, so be it, this, you know? This is coming from a greedy place of like, we want to be watching Tarantino, mo- new Tarantino movies from the rest of our lives. Yeah. And to cut <laughs> like, it off when you're at like 65 or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. For me, it's just the fact that he cares so much more than anyone else yeah. does about the 10 movies thing. I and think is to think like, that's legacy mattering more than art is crazy to me. Anyway, Tony, what's your number four? So uh, speaking of age and filmmaking, I have uh, 94 years young. I got Frederick Wiseman and his uh, new documentary, Menus Plaisirs Le Tragois. Which I, I've been meaning to see, uh, but... To be honest, I, I didn't because of the runtime. And I'll watch it at home at some point. Uh, it's good, though. I have not seen this either. Tony, you're going to take the Wiseman reigns for you're gonna take. I, I like Wiseman. I've only seen City Hall, but yes. I've seen City Hall, too. Fantastic Great movie. Film. Great movie. Yeah. Um, yes. Mengi's Plaisirs Le Trogois. Fastest four hours of my life went by like that. And, you know, what's great about this film is that it's a total antithesis to the harsh kitchen and film stereotypes and realities that we kind of uh, have been getting in pop culture, not just of late, but generally always. You kind of always see the chef as like very angry, short-tempered, and pretentious, um, maybe having a mental breakdown, or he's just Swedish in the Muppets. Which you know? is cool. Both, <laughs> so, both are very cool people yeah, to be. Yeah, and so, so we see a lot of that, but here is about the joyful, noble profession of running a really fucking high-end restaurant and everything that goes into it. And um, a profession that's been passed down through generations. One of the great moments in the film, the family's been, um, the it's been passed down through generations, and the main chef, uh, who sort of is running the restaurant, but kind of no longer his son's taken over, and someone asks him, why do you think everybody in your family has been chefs for so long, and why did your kids follow in your footsteps? And, you know, he replies that, because my children probably only associate positive things. We created a very positive life surrounding our business. And that's why they probably felt the call to join the family business as well. Um, and I, I just thought that's so fascinating because you, you hear people, you know, kids of musicians, kids of filmmakers, kids of Wall Street executives lawyers, family businesses, pizza places, ice cream places that have been passed down through generations and kids rebelling and what are the reasons for that, you know? Uh, And here it seems to be a positive and delightful experience. Not to say it isn't intense. It's a three Michelin star restaurant. It's incredibly intense. Mm -hmm. 
but there is a joyfulness to the art of fine dining and uh, a noble profession, and it's you're spending four hours with that, and probably one of the most legendary reveals of a cheese cart, a cart of cheeses, <laughs> that you, you'll just see it revealed and you just go, oh my gosh, <laughs> is this the Mona Lisa? Yeah. Oh my, is, this is fantastic. So, Word. Yeah, menus plaisirs les trogois. I can't wait to see it. I'm really... Um... Yeah, no, me too. I mean, I one of my main like cinematic goals in uh, 2024 is to really immerse myself more into... Uh, not say more, immerse myself at all into uh, Frederick Wiseman and really get on board with his like filmography because I feel like his whole project is... When I eventually dive into it, I'm just going to fall into it for like a full year. Yeah. <laughs> I just know that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, right. But I haven't seen this one yet. Uh, and so for those of you who are listening and haven't seen a Frederick Wiseman film, is that his documentaries are very much observational and fly on the wall. And of course, there's uh, a no perfect purity because you're he's mm-hmm. obviously constructing the film and has a final say on the cut, but he's trying to keep to that principle of being a fly on the wall and not sort of create, not create any narratives. Yeah. The effect is like, you feel like you're just in the room with these people. Right. Like you really feel like a part of things. And you have more questions than answers as well. So, um, I actually saw this film, um, with my girlfriend, Claire, her brother, Kevin, uh, is a fine dining executive chef. Whoa, so this is oh. like his world. Uh, he's on a little bit of a sabbatical right now. So he actually just started his sabbatical when we saw this <laughs> film. And so before That's we funny. saw it, he turned no. to me and he was just like, he's like, I don't know if what's going to happen when I watch this doc. It's just like, am I never going to want to cook again? And I was like, or you're going to get back into it tomorrow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? And so, but one of the questions he has, because he thought of Jiro dreams of sushi and there's that mm-hmm. whole, you know, there's Jiro and then his son and sort of the existential crises and living, you know, living up to their father's reputation and going in their footsteps or breaking away. Like there's all that. And in uh, Menus Plaisirs, there's uh, three restaurants There's and hotels. There's the three Michelin star restaurant. There's an upscale restaurant um, that the second son runs. So the oldest son runs Le Trois now. The second eldest runs this upscale restaurant more in the city. But it's not Michelin starred at all. And then they have a Tragua food cart. So it's like almost like all economic classes are sort of covered in their business. But you see the son who's not running the three Michelin star restaurant. And so um, Kevin, you know, asked me, there's there's no sort of narrative. We don't know what his thoughts are, why he's doing it. And it's like, it's true, but that's Frederick Wiseman. You know, it's observational. We don't know how this son feels. Like, is he jealous that he's not running the three Michelin yeah. star restaurant? Or did he feel the call to run this type of restaurant? And he's actually like, yeah, that's not for me, but I still love being yeah. a restaurateur. And but like, to try to force a narrative on that would be dishonest. Exactly. Like, yeah. That's what Frederick Wiseman would say. Yeah. Not to say that he's right or wrong, but that's just his style. No, yeah, know? definitely. It's interesting. Have either of you guys seen the uh, Taste of Things yet? 
that. No. I have not seen yeah, it. No, yeah. me neither. But I'm it comes out in it. a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. All I've right. Heard, I've heard mixed things on it. Mm. Okay. Just from people I know. I, I know it's getting great reviews, but yeah. yeah. I Yeah, I have not seen when that one's even coming out yet. Number four yeah. for me is Close Your Eyes by Victor Arise. Woo! Um, <laughs> saw this at the New York Film Festival. Hell yeah, dude. I have I not seen it Would yet. have loved to be it, to see that there. I just saw this actually a couple days ago. This is the one that uh, made December off of my list at the last minute. I, this is one that had not even been on my radar for a while um i learned of it pretty recently i had seen it as a few people's number one and as a work from this filmmaker who has been active for like 50 years uh but has inactive well (laughs) for 30 yeah exactly and then like i hadn't you know i hadn't seen any of, of his work so i was not tapped into any of the the hype for this but uh i went into it not knowing too much about it and it really really blew me away this is such a beautiful film just about memory and relationships between one another and with oneself and the labor of love and um the role that cinema can have helping people you know recollect and um, reminisce on their lives and uh, how it can can be used as a benchmark in time sort of this is a movie about a film director who 20 years after the disappearance of his actor friend a man who had starred in many of his movies including the incomplete film that we see a a reel of to to open up the movie and director is approached by this like almost true crime type series of uh just like a mystery show dedicated to the story of this actor's disappearance so like you get a scene where he's being asked a lot of these tabloid-esque questions on this uh interview stage that's just totally like showy and ridiculous um and then the movie becomes about he goes to try to find this guy who he thinks might still even be alive and um and i'm i'm very impressed by how little energy the movie places into like the mystery element or at at least or at least it doesn't at all turn this into like a thriller i feel like a lot of filmmakers would just sort of inherently move towards um and is instead like more interested in the patience and the like humanity of what happened to to this guy and is not necessarily like here is the juicy details of like where he's been but it's like whatever happened to him you can kind of infer this is what has happened to him this is where he is now this is where he's been found by someone who has spent 20 years thinking he's dead what's just super powerful about the movie for me is how he's able to use cinema and particularly the reels from the film that had been unfinished to try to uh, bring back this actor's memory. And uh, this, the, the way that it plays out is really beautiful and poignant. And uh, yeah, truly one of the best films of the year for me. Yeah, you know, I also thought that it was kind of loosely autobiographical. Oh, definitely. Uh, with the filmmaker Victor Arice, who you know directed spirit of the beehives is kind of like the film he's most noted uh for and i also identified with it because i kind of had a friend who sort of disappeared as, as well in my life and 
you find yourself not really trying to solve a mystery, but you kind of go back and connect with people and kind of you keep looping through what went down and sort of analyze it, analyze yourself. And is there anything that you could have changed or were things destined to be this way? Is it just simply all out of your control why this person disappeared, you know? And if you did or didn't, like, um, I mean, if you do or don't know, do you, are you correcting your theory about what happened or are you, you know, incorrect? And you kind of find all that through this film. Yeah, I, I also really enjoyed the, like, archivist character, like the old man <laughs> yeah. who um, he's talking about how it doesn't look the same on memory cards anymore and like he comes in at the he's a real one he brings in the whole like camera reel to to show this guy and he says to the uh main character miracles are over in the cinema since dryer died that line kind of summarized so much compared to you know what we actually see there at the the very end you know without trying being a little bit vague as to not you know ruin the experience of the movie but Definitely one of the best of the year. Uh, something that I would love to revisit, and I think I might even enjoy more upon rewatch. Great film. Uh, Seamus, what, what's your number three? Um, my number three is Oppenheimer. So, uh, Tony, what's your number three? Uh, <laughs> I'm not. I, we already talked about Oppenheimer. Oh, no, it's good. It's we, good. Um, we did talk about Oppenheimer. Yeah, Tony, what's your number three? All right, my number three is a film called Unrest, and it's directed by Cyril Schaublin from switzerland um and this film is what i'll tongue-in-cheekly call the peter kropotkin biopic um for any of you who don't know peter kropotkin is an early proponent of the uh philosophy of communal anarchism and what is communal anarchism it's a decentralized communist society that's rooted in mutual aid collectivism and perpetual revolution and I mean, at the heart of it, it's a there's individual freedoms, but it's still about the collective and not the individual. So, how do you make a Peter Kropotkin biopic if he's a communal anarchist? The answer? You set it in a watch factory in the Swiss Alps during the Industrial Revolution. You explore the community and the factory workers and the conditions that they live in with... Kropotkin periodically popping up in the story and then exiting out of frame. <laughs> and that's what happens. Uh, it is a fictional drama film, historical fiction drama film, but it has a lot of documentary vibes to it. Um, and I have to say the best part is the picture framing in this film. It's absolutely fantastic the people in the film are generally so small compared to nature, to the buildings, and these just towering structures, it seems, throughout the whole film. Um, and it can make a person feel really insignificant, but the world is beautiful, and it's worth fighting for to create a better place and a new world rooted in anarcho-communism and then one last tidbit unrest uh, has a lot of meetings you know unrest unrest of the working class of the proletariat but unrest literally in this sense it is the balance spindle 
of the mechanical watch that ensures the movement of the hands of the watch. So think about those tiny wrist watches in the hand. There's a little balance that someone takes with their hands and like these needles and they just gently try and place it and balance it, make sure it balances in order for the watch to work. And this was a job that people would do in the Industrial Revolution, work hours and hours on end, uh, an extremely difficult job, a highly skilled job for obviously no money. And these people in this community that the film explores has sort of uh, formed their own union and collected. They had to do it in secret, obviously, because if they do, they were found out, they would be instantly fired or um, even arrested or jailed. And uh, you get to see how they collectively um operate themselves and how they take care of each other and how they take care of workers throughout the world so yeah unrest that's fucking beautiful dude i love it number three for me pacifiction albert sarah all right i absolutely love this movie i have you seen any of his other films Uh, yeah um before i it was either before or after I saw this one. I watched the one with Jean-Pierre Lode as the Dying King. Yeah, the death of King Louis the Fourteenth. That Amazing. one didn't, that didn't do a whole lot for me oh, to be honest. No! But I loved Pacifiction. <laughs> Pacifiction is so goddamn good. I saw this during a Q and A with Albert Seurat at the uh, film at Lincoln Center. So that was super cool. Like this was one of the first 2023 releases that I saw, and. Uh, you know, I was at the time, I was like, this is definitely going to make my, my top 10 of the year. And uh, were it not for the two behemoths from two incredible directors that I'm sure can be deciphered by now, uh, this would have been my, my favorite movie of the year. It takes place in colonial French Polynesia. Uh, it's almost a three-hour movie, but it's a very slow burn that takes place over a pretty quick period of time as the... Uh, residents of this island grow increasingly concerned that where they live is about to be used as a nuclear testing site and the protagonist if you will of this film is benoit de roller i believe is his name uh and it follows him as he's this slick talking empty liberal bureaucrat tasked with managing order on this island and preventing chaos from breaking out ultimately his job is to keep people in line and that becomes a very difficult balancing act um because with two seconds of thought i mean that you instantly realize it serves no purpose and falls apart logistically so the whole movie operates in this space of like does anything that this character is doing matter and is pretty clear from the get-go that it does not and that he is a bullshit artist and a lot of the poetry and the beauty of the movie is um watching how he impacts the surroundings around him through his bullshit like i said you know i saw it with a q a with sarah who was a very memorable guy uh, i remember him saying a lot of critics had been what did he say anything memorable yeah i mean he said that a lot of critics were blown away by the last hour of the movie and i mean with with good reason i think that is 
as poetic an hour as anyone has been able to construct in a long time. And it really, it really blew me away. He also said that like the movies of the eighties are bullshit, which I thought was pretty funny. (laughs) Um, You know, I get the sense he means more like Hollywood, like Reagan shit, uh, which I would agree with. But um, I thought it was pretty funny. So I saw Liberté, which was his film uh, prior uh, to this, which was about uh, libertines in uh, 18th century France and their sexual escapades out in the woods. It's a very uh, like sound forward film. It's all about listening and the noises that you hear. Anyways, I went to a Q&A with him online via Zoom because it was the pandemic. And surprising thing he had a american flag t-shirt on and like a tweed jacket and he said one of his big life influences is herb kelleher who founded southwest airlines what the hell (laughs) (laughs) and what What, what, what was the reasoning yeah ah shit i can't remember i think i wrote it down somewhere but this just popped into my head interesting um like maybe his vision and like executing the vision i don't fucking know but yeah i i like pacifiction but it didn't blow me away like Liberté or the death of King Louis the Fourteenth did. It gave a lot of um, uh, inherent vice vibes. Or the I guess long that's why goodbye. I love it. It's, it's, it's Miami Vice too. A yeah, little bit. yeah, and, and it's kind of like okay, I've seen that. You know, okay, you're like investigating whatever, but it's 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 bigger than you could ever possibly fathom. It's just so over your head, you know. It's like cool, man. For me, like that kind of thing works here, though. Like where, yeah. where it it might not if it was like more like a detective noir thing. Like it works for me because the like it's bigger than you could imagine is as simple as like the French government is going to use this area as a nuclear testing site, and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it. Right. So we're just gonna watch this smooth talker like try to balance the order and before the military comes in and it's like that is so just like that story itself is so like on cinematic and on mysterious but there's so much cinema like that he's able to construct from it and um i don't know that that doesn't feel as cliche to me right as it it could if it was like a movie with stakes that weren't almost tongue-in-cheek right. with their own with how like trivial they are i buy that you know what i mean um Hell yeah and i also would like to to mention like the traveling sequences that are so transfixing that i forgot i wasn't on a plane myself when i was watching it like it almost put me to sleep in like a very good way like there are some movies where it's like falling asleep is like the ultimate compliment because it's like it's, that's a Pisha we- Pong Rascals said that yes. with Uncle Boon May. Yeah, no, I famously he's like, if you need to nod off, dude, yeah, be no, my guest. I I totally fuck with that that vision. I felt I feel the same way about uh, Ackerman's Almayer's Folly. That mm. like that put me to sleep in a way that was just so comforting, and I like loved it. And <laughs> it's just beautiful, <laughs> so good, man. Uh, uh, cinema as a tuck you into bed. Yes, and that vibe, and I then love that, that incredible sequence in the ocean with that one shot as the tide is becoming stronger. Mm. Um, 
one of the most major moments in a movie for me as well. So number three, Pacifiction. Love that shit. Gotta watch it again. Seamus, we are getting into the real yeah. gritty here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's number two? Number two, uh, The Killer. It's a movie I've seen four times now. I love David Fincher. I'm not really like a neophyte over him usually, um, but The Killer, I think, is just such a perfectly calibrated movie. I kind of hated it the first time I saw it. I thought it was like a really lame attempt at like sort of a, a Michael Mann protagonist, hyper-professional but then I saw it again, and I'm like, I got what everyone else was seeing. It's sort of this satire about like this guy who has this warped self-perception of himself and how sort of the gig economy kind of like fucks with how he like presents himself. He's just a normal guy who, in order to succeed, needs to be like a hyper grind set, like super um, anal about his job type of thing. And when on the third viewing, it really opened up for me because it was like, oh, no, he's very good at his job. He's just having a bad week. It's a movie about professionalism, and I, I guess you could relate it to art, but I think it's more just about like the the meaning that we need to ascribe ourselves in a world where like nothing means anything. It, it, you know, you you, you uh, it's about a guy who ascribes grand importance to his job, even though, and sort of looks down on people who do normal shit, who looks down on like the McDonald's workers that he buys burgers from, and like you know, he looks down on. He, he literally has a line where he's like why is this assassin living in this town with the normies or whatever? Right. When really like his arc is realizing that he himself is a normie. He himself is just as weak as the normies, which I think is a movie everyone needs to see, especially film people right now. Um, and I, you know, I just think it's perfectly performed, perfectly acted and it's just eminently rewatchable. It's very episodic in how the plot is sort of made. Yeah. Um, every scene is not only awesome in its own way, but it has a different appeal. I mean, the, the fight where he breaks into the Brute's house is Amazing. the most visceral action scene of the year. The whole 20-minute opening is both fascinating, kind of romantic, and has a very funny climax. The scene with Tilda Swinton is maybe the most engaging dialogue scene of the year. She is in the 2024 Seamus's. She is the Best Supporting Actress winner for the year. Tilda Love Swinton. It. Love it. Um can I ask a question? What's up? Did you see it in a movie theater? I saw it. The first time I saw it, I saw it in a movie theater. You did? Where'd you see it? I saw it at Regal Union Square. Nice. Yes. I saw fuck, it at I Alamo. It. You saw it at Alamo? Yeah. When the fuck did it play? Uh, like a week. It played for like a week. It was a week. God damn it. See but Netflix. Here's yeah. what like I'll why say. I, David yeah. Fincher is a guy who I think, you know, obviously he's warm to Netflix at this point. Um, but what I will say to the credit of The Killer is for me, I think it played better when it was like very ease of access viewing when I could just throw on the killer whenever I wanted to. I got home from work. I had okay. a long day. Order a pizza, fucking grab a Stella Artois and throw on the killer. Killer time. Killer time. Yeah, that's it. It's just I, my PlayStation 5 was a killer machine for about a week. <laughs> um, it's just an extremely digestible movie. Um, wouldn't change a frame of it. Really just, I'm going to be watching that movie for the rest of my life. I, 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 the Holdovers is very rewatchable, but that's my rewatchable movie of the year. Feel that. Completely yeah. feel that. Um, my number two? Yeah. What's your number two? All right. My number two is Miss Me Yet. Another. This is the third documentary. It's directed by Christopher Jason Bell. Okay. This, this is, is one I've really wanted to see. But This yeah, is a four-hour documentary that you could watch for free on means.tv 
Um, and what this is is a George W. Bush documentary. It's about George W. Bush. Um, it is friend of the podcast, George. W. <laughs> friend Bush. of the pod, <laughs> big and, Mudville supporter from oh, the yeah. day one. Yeah, Patreon support, Patreon, <laughs> the number one patron, George W. Bush. He actually uh, painted our logo. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, anyways, it, it's a. Um, four-hour documentary it's divided into 10 parts it did screen in two parts at spectacle cinema this year and elsewhere but you can watch it on means tv it's broken up into like 23 25 minute episodes it is uh all archival footage from george w bush's presidency and it's cut with that as well as commercials that you would see on tv advertising tv shows Mm. advertising the main theme is uh banking commercials and getting loans and both of the sort of uh commercial industry you know capitalism pop culture and the george bush presidency kind of uh slowly builds especially the commercial side to the 2008 crisis um and you know for me so this is like a little interesting i think it plays for anyone even if you weren't aware so like how old were you both during the bush presidency we were both well, i mean 98 we were yeah, born we were both born in 98 yeah so oh, we were wow. 10 when the housing crisis happened yeah. yeah you were 10 okay so i was 16 when that happened so from 8 to 16 i grew up uh, in a political junkie and Republican household. So uh, all of these figures were very familiar to me. So, but even if you don't have familiarity, because it's not just George W. Bush, it's the whole cabinet of people. Yeah. Um, it's campaign people. It's senators and congressmen. A whole lot of Karl Rove <laughs> in it. Um, anyways, just all these villains are popping up on the screen the entire time and while i was watching i yelled to someone that man is a pedophile when dennis hastert came on screen dennis hastert is the longest serving speaker of the house uh in u.s history and it was during the bush years and he is a pedophile convicted Uh, and no one cares or remembers even even if you weren't old enough to remember people who are your parents and your parents parents don't fucking remember um the emotional blows in this film are a plenty and it's a fucking dark rabbit hole. George W. Bush, when you watch this is simply the worst to ever do it. Trump be damned. Uh, and people have already forgotten about it. People who don't care. Uh, and, uh, it hopefully it clears the Ellen DeGeneres, Michelle Obama cobwebs, Lincoln project cobwebs. And even if it doesn't, uh, I think it's a great educational tool um, to learn more about his presidency and, yeah, uh, solidarity with uh, the Iraqis, Afghanis, and everyone in the Middle East, uh, Palestinians, too, um, affected by the crimes of his presidency. Uh, and I, I spent my 9-11 watching this documentary. I spent four hours <laughs> watching it, 
And okay, w- there's a lot of great commercials that you'll see, but uh, I have to shout out since this is a movie podcast, you do see a commercial advertising three nights in a row of The Mummy starring Brendan Fraser. <laughs> and courtesy of TNT, they know drama. And Word. those were the days when you're just like, fuck yeah, three nights in a row <laughs> of The Mummy. Of The Mummy. Let's yeah. fucking go. That's a bad Triple share of Brendan Fraser. <laughs> that would have been on my list. It's number 13. Uh, it, got, it got pushed down by Anatomy of a Fallen. <laughs> <laughs> the um, mummy. Dude, I gotta see Miss Me Yet. That sounds, sounds I, I can't wait sounds to great. watch It's that. for free on means.tv. That is a um, subscription service as well. There's so many subscription services, even a leftist subscription service. Like, <laughs> I, I can't even fucking do Patreon. We have a Patreon. Sorry. I just, like, I can't fucking I afford it, anything. No. I got MLB TV and the Criterion channel. Everything else I steal from people. That's all but you need. you can go to Means TV because they do have free shit and Miss Me Yet is one of them and it is so close. It is pretty much, once you get up to three, two, one, it's fucking film of the year, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, shout dude. out Christopher Jason Bell. All right. My nope. number two, yep. I suspect Seamus is number one, so let's talk no about way. it right now. No way. Martin Scorsese's Killers of the it Flower Moon. It is my Moon. number one of the year. Yeah. Killers of the Flower Moon. What a picture. Oh, Foundational. My God. Foundational. Yeah. It was it, all right. <laughs> it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, holy shit. I mean, we did not do a full episode on this. I wanted to get into it now. I don't know if I can get into the whole thing because, my God, it's just so big. Yeah. Like, you know, I saw this movie in, in IMAX, and I remember thinking I couldn't even focus on the entire screen at the same time. Like, I had to look from yeah. left to right almost. Did like, you only, you, have you only seen it once? I've only seen it once so far. I need to see it again. I saw it a second time. Um, still good. Yep. You know, obviously. I can uh, imagine. <laughs> um, yeah. So what, what, what to say about killers of the flower moon? I mean, if you want a movie about the banality of evil, like so many people said about the zone of interest, this is it, I think, because this is so procedural and gives you so much of a look as to how the De Niro character is able to manipulate and use DiCaprio specifically, just this lumbering doofus, but just like the other white men surrounding this Oklahoma town and how he's able to coerce and manipulate them. You know, some, I I mean, are just like naturally evil people so they will you know try to steal these people's money and kill them for their oil naturally did but you uh did you read the book not yet I book, need to. the book is possibly even better than the movie wow. it's definitely a debate but it's a masterwork of adaptation in the sense where it's like uh you're you're taking this book which is a very i don't want to say paint by numbers journalistic effort but it is kind of like this is the details of what happened and it's framed in a way where it like doles out the facts of the case in like a really you know true crime way and i think the movie you know very plain faced about what's going on from the very beginning oh yeah very framing the antagonists of the movie center frame as much as possible yep no which, doubt i mean I don't want to say it's the only way you could have made this movie. I suspect it probably would have been a very different movie if you had like an indigenous filmmaker making the movie. For sure. Um, but for a movie on this scale with these actors, I feel like it's the best course of action and it's the one that sort of is the most fruitful dramatically. I mean, just the relationship between DiCaprio and Gladstone from the perspective of Ernest Burkhardt's character is like twisted. Um, 
but there's still like this element of romance to it. Like there is like a real love between them, which makes like the genuinely following yeah. three hours so fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, it, it's just a real um, masterstroke of adaptation for me. Yeah, and like the way that De Niro is able to coerce DiCaprio specifically into like literally yeah. poisoning his own wife and like also have him think like oh no you're you're doing the right thing is yeah. that's crazy like i there are there are things in this movie that like seem like you wouldn't be able to depict them on screen or mm-hmm. at least depict like the weight that they have in the world around them and like be able to make the audience feel that and mm-hmm. Scorsese you can tell just put so much love into this movie and like the supporting performances in in this as well just you can't go on long enough about them I mean yeah Cara Jade Jade Myers has not gotten nearly enough love I think in like award season I mean she would be one of my supporting actress nominees she's honestly so so good uh, that was the sister right who gets murdered yeah Yeah. the alcoholic unbelievable so Tantu Cardinal the mother yep haunts she has like three lines maybe and she just her face stuck with me for the entire year and the the owl yeah the owl her death sequence I mean just really I don't want to say rousing, but really just like transcendent. Absolutely. There's a shot where Lily Gladstone is like laying down and it cuts to her face like upside down. And it's like one of the most haunting things I've ever seen, let alone 2023. One of the things that I want to say about this film, I liked it a lot. And, you know, Scorsese is, you know, I think his films, he has a very specific film point of view in all of his films. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, you know, he's an artist, he's an entertainer. He, he makes like great fucking movies for people to watch. And just to sort of contrast with the Wolf of Wall Street, I think his point of view is clear in the Wolf of Wall Street. But I think um, depending on who watched that, which, you know, it's it's all subjective, but some people may have gotten the wrong idea with that film. May but have. I fucking love The Wolf of Wall Street because I know people who've like started a real estate business and they named it Oakmont. Yeah, like it's just it's but it's kind of like it's out of his hands, you know. It's like well, fight for your right to party. But this film in Killers of the Flower Moon, his point of view was clear, and I really felt his rage, Scorsese's own personal rage about what happened throughout the entire film. And I'm so glad I got that from him. Yeah. Um, and completely agree. What, what's so interesting to contrast those two movies is yeah. like Wolf of Wall Street, part, part of that thing of like, oh, like people get the wrong message from this movie. It's like you need to, to, show, to show the corruption, you need to show what's appealing about evil. Right. You need to show what attracts somebody to a lifestyle like this. To say like, to show like Jordan Belfort with like a needle sticking out of his arm and like, you know, his wife leaving him. It would just be dishonest. I mean, this is a guy who is like having sex with thousands of women, just doing drugs, having a great time. I mean, to not show that would be like dishonest and kind of manipulative. A hundred percent. But but what's great about killers is like and what's so powerful to me about it is like there's like some material rewards for what they're doing and what they're doing is like the worst thing imaginable. And what's so the rage I think is coming from the confusion of like, what did you fucking get out of this? Especially from the perspective of Ernest Burkhart, who's literally killing his wife to appease like a man who doesn't give a fuck about him. Yeah. Like a sad Catholic man staring into the void of hell with like 
uncertainty, confusion. Like it really, it's just like the, the, the uncomprehension of evil, I think is what's so sticking with me about that movie. And I mean, I grew up Catholic. I love Scorsese's whole thing. And I really relate to like, like, I feel like when I watch his movies and I th- he talks about sort of like the temptations of evil or something, I'm back in church or whatever as a kid, uh, you know, f- for mixed results. But I do feel like I, I get I personally I share that same sort of fear and uncertainty in terms of like, damn, like the appeal of evil, but also like how could n- not them to separate from myself, but like how could people do things like this? Right. And like what they did is inside all of us to an extent, which is so horrifying. Absolutely. Um, and I, I love the Wolf of Wall Street comparisons that, that you both drew because it felt, like you guys said, a, a filmmaker who has spent his career showing what is so appealing about evil, but like in most cases, like crime, I guess. Right. I yeah, mean, yeah, it's yeah. Not yeah. Usually... It is, his point of view is very clear in all these, which is what I want to say. Oh, yes. But oh, like sure, for, some, sure. for some reason... It was like this time it's personal, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Well, like he's, me, he's Martin Scorsese. Yeah. I'm telling you, fucking right. Like, uh, and maybe he's just tweaking his approach a bit to be like, nah, this is fucking pissing me off to the point where you know? it's like, the and you length all of the should movie. be fucking mad about this. And also guilty and complicit too. To the point of where like the movie is as long as it is because he wants it to feel like an endurance test. He wants you to come out of it like exhausted and yeah. like kind of beaten down a little bit. I was going to say this feels so different because it feels like a filmmaker who spent his whole career doing that, finally getting fed up with people misreading his movies like i think wolf of wall street is probably the most misread movie of all time <laughs> like I, I saw a thing it's, like, it's the fight for your right to party of cinema <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's like i saw a thing once where it was like someone snapchatted a bunch of like 15 year olds like what's your favorite movie and like 90 percent of them just replied wolf and it's like <laughs> it's not because of the nuance that movie shows of like capital and like excess it's because they like watching leo dicaprio snort cocaine and fuck a bunch of models and it's like i i get that of course i get that that movie rocks 2024 is the year of the grind set it's a (laughs) it's a grind set classic get your bag yep um so and this felt like scorsese getting fed up with that and just deciding to beat you over the head with what these characters do and who these characters are yeah like the moment in which i felt that the most is when they have ernest burkhart brush hands with the ku klux klan in a moment that does not really serve any moment in the plot other than to establish the proximity to the yeah. Tulsa race riots of 1921. Yeah. And um, De Niro watches the Tulsa race riots and he's like, gee, gee golly, I have an idea how to make things worse. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, it's terrible. And it's um, like, but that that shot specifically of like the KKK guy coming in and like shaking hands with DiCaprio, it's like this guy fucking sucks it's like he's slapping you in the face repeatedly as you're watching and it's like i get it i mean 10 years after the wolf of wall street the same actor the same director this is of course in a completely different type of movie where it wouldn't be able to be read like in the way that the wolf of wall street was or a bunch of kids will be like this guy rocks but it felt very much like he was just taking this and saying here you motherfucker this is what i'm saying and like and i could see how like something like that might not work 
But in this, it worked so well because he did it in such a balanced and such a like nuanced way, where you're seeing each like level of how this is playing out. And like you know, like you said, Seamus, you see when De Niro gets an idea, and then you see the execution of that idea with like DiCaprio, and then you see the result of what they did with Lily Gladstone, and that trifecta of those three performances. I mean, it's been repeated to death how great all three of them are and lily gladstone like specifically you know she'll be probably the most deserving oscar winner ever yeah, yeah she's the best performance of the year yeah. bar none yeah you know i'm just excited for more scorsese films to come out like i'm just so fascinating his perspective on old age yep. it's like i think we're getting into some really interesting stuff he's like i've only just now started to like Nope. Discover cinema. It's oh, he's amazing. making that, this eighty-minute Jesus movie, which is really yeah, commissioned to me. by the Pope. You know, oh boy, yeah. the Pope told him to make it. <laughs> it's like when the Pope commissioned Michelangelo. Is this the cinematic equivalent yeah. of I'd Michelangelo painting yeah, the Sistine dude. Chapel? Yes, that's my answer. Can I can I change my number one real quick too? To, to the Sistine my number Chapel. one is the the TED uh, TV show. <laughs> Fuck yeah! Have you guys watched the TED show? Uh, no, but I've been seeing like all of it's the clips. really funny. It seems really funny. It's really funny, dude. Yeah. Wait, I what's believe. what's TED? What's TED? Seth MacFarlane, the Bear. Do you don't know it? It's okay. So it's there's Mar- a TV show. Yeah, yeah, they made like a prequel, they made a prequel about prequel Mark, to the Wahlberg, Mark as a kid. Wahlberg movie. When did this come out? It came out like a week ago. Where on Peacock? Oh God! It's, <laughs> no, well, okay. I but just don't know anything. If it's on streaming, it's yeah. not even a fucking cultural event. It's it's it, no, it's I'm sort of, it's and sort I of, like Ted and listen, I like man, Seth MacFarlane. Dude, the kid that they got, he's doing a Mark so Wahlberg voice the one? whole time. That's it's it, this is a joke. He's doing a bit. I'm doing a bit, but the Ted TV they make it. He does a Mark Wahlberg voice the whole time. Shay Wiggum's daughter is in it. the The effects are actually beautiful. Uh, Killers yeah. of the Flower Moon is my number one of the year. Uh, and then number zero is the Ted. Number prequel. zero is Ted, specifically episode five, Desperately Seeking Susan, <laughs> where his where Mark Wahlberg's mom becomes the substitute teacher. That, that Every line of that fucking episode is a bar. All right, I got to anyway, watch that. Anyway, t- Tony, uh, what, what's your number one? Yeah, what's number one? All right, my number one of the year is called Other People's Children by Rebecca Zoltowski. Okay, um, sick. It's a French film that came out this year starring um, Virginie Efira. Um, and it's a really beautiful, wonderful film. She plays, um, it's a Rachel's a 40-year-old woman, and she's single, has no children. But she is a teacher, and she's also dating. And um, she um, starts dating a man with a... Uh, who's divorced and has like a five or six year old child. And as the relationship starts to get more intimate and intense with the man close, I don't know, it's like, you know, it, it, the relationship gets longer and they get closer and stuff. Uh, she becomes more attached to the daughter. And it's this weird circumstance where it's like, this isn't my child, but I'm picking them up. I'm like taking care of them when they're sick. I'm cooking them dinner. You know, it's this weird dynamic. And we're not even, I'm not even married to this guy. And I don't have children of my own. Um, and so you have that element. And she's also a school teacher. And so you also hear, uh, you also experience the students that she interacts with and has an impact on as a teacher. 
Um, and then this whole idea of, you know, she's running out of time of whether or not she wants to have a child and, uh, you know, how to go about doing that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my number one film of the year. And, uh, fucking Frederick Wiseman plays her gynecologist. In the film. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, that's Cause he moved to France and he, he speaks French in the film. Um, so it's really awesome. Hell yeah, dude. I'll have to check it out. I'm taking us home here, boys. Marathon episode. Thank you so much to anybody who has stuck with us through this. We have really enjoyed doing this episode. What's for you your guys. number one? Is this coming up? My number one of the year is Oppenheimer. Yeah. So Oppenheimer, <laughs> good movie. Bit of an anticlimactic we, we reveal. About it. Yeah. yeah, we talked about it. We had an episode. Seamus came on. We talked about Barbie and we talked about Oppenheimer. Nolan is the number one Casey Affleck fan in the world. Oh yeah, dude. I started his fan club. Yeah. Um, Oh my God! He's, you you he's let you, you donated to all of his legal cases, right? I did. Yeah, yeah. All, that's I'm, where all the Patreon money's I, going. I went broke doing that, but <laughs> I mean, it, it felt like it was a noble cause. You know, yeah. I was like, you were so convincing as Boris Posh <laughs> and Oppenheimer, dude. That steal, I'm going to stealing your like your parents' <laughs> cash from their fucking <laughs> underwear drawer so that you could donate to Casey Affleck. <laughs> I got a few honorable mentions. I just want to throw out there. Oh, sure. I, yeah, I, yeah. I mentioned one, but I just want to throw them oh, out. Yeah. What? Uh, close your eyes, Victor Arice. Sure. Yep. Passages. Passages uh, the Teacher's Lounge, which is a great German film about a fucking school teacher who just uh, is kind of progressive, but just keeps fucking up every <laughs> single direction yeah. and ruining people's lives. Showing up, Kelly Reichert. Uh, a very good comedy that came out by Louis Garel, Felipe Garel's son, mm. uh, called Le Innocent with uh, one of the lead actresses from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Sure. Uh, the Holdovers. Um, Meg 2, The Trench. I never saw Meg, but Jason Statham. Uh, ridiculous movie, and in an era where there's so much irony and wink-wink, nod-nod, that we're being ridiculous. This film was just ridiculous in its own right, and I love that. There's a scene where he blows out his sinuses, and he's five miles underwater, and like that will save him from like his body imploding. It's just absolute nonsense. Yeah. And then uh, Coconut Head Generation, which is a great documentary, um, and uh, takes place in Africa, and it's about a college. Wait, where is it from? Where's the? It's from Nigeria. Okay, it's, it's Nigerian. It's a college in Nigeria. Um, and uh, it's a students, a documentary, and it's the students have formed their own film club, and they watch a film, and then they have a discussion afterwards. And they usually uh, show political films, and so it's a, a great honorable mention. That's yeah. all. I just I wanted to rattle too. some. No, other that's picks awesome, off. man. Yeah. Um, I guess why did I put Oppenheimer number one? I think, I mean, besides what we already talked about, how I think it's a, he basically made three movies and it was able to juggle so much story in a way that felt both symmetrical and also like it did justice to like the story at hand and was able to complete everything in a way that didn't feel rushed. And like, that is an amazing feat even for within three hours. I mean, it's, it's my favorite 
Christopher Nolan movie. I I feel like I went into it almost wanting to distance myself from him a, a little bit, just as like a guy who grew up and was like ten for when The Dark Knight came out. Just he's very much like glued into the like zeitgeist of culture, or like he's the blockbuster filmmaker sort of. So I think there's kind of an automatic response you could have to kind of want to like write him off a little bit, or to be like he's oh he's like that guy who makes all the big movies, and like this felt to me like the best possible thing that somebody like Christopher Nolan could make because it's something that is taking this historical figure and is being used as I mean it felt to me like an indictment but just more of a portrayal of the like American in this case but I feel like Western on a larger scale um, bureaucracy and just like the systems of power in place and we watch as they um chew him up and spit him out and um you know i I said when we were doing the episode on the movie the the second you get the shot of the bomb being hauled off uh killian murphy is completely he does not he, he no longer controls a single portion of the plot the rest of the stuff is just things happening to him and the way that they show like the um house of an american committee and like the blacklisting and like because that is truly one of the worst things that's ever happened in america and you don't get that enough and a lot of people don't understand that i don't think because it isn't the people in power have vested interests in us not knowing things like that or not at least actively thinking about them so for somebody like Christopher Nolan to uh, come along with this movie and then ask questions like, did this already destroy the world in a way? And it's like, oh, oh my God. And uh, I felt like it, it wasn't something that I had really seen in a theater before, at least certainly not on that scale. Like it felt like a very uh, responsible use of resources for from Christopher Nolan being like the only guy that could get that kind of budget to get that kind of movie made you know to get americans to go out into a theater for the first time in like three years in a lot of their cases and watch this three-hour movie about a physicist that like ultimately makes them call into question america's role in the like global whatever the fuck i don't know i'm i'm running out of steam a little bit here but god what what a good movie movie. shout out josh peck yeah shout out josh peck um for me yeah just the movie itself, I mean, what clearly went into it and just the impact it had both on, like, audiences and just getting those audiences to even exist. I mean, it really played a very important role in movie going this year. And uh, for that, I think it earned my, my number one spot. That has been it for our lists. We have really, we've gone in on these. Uh, this has been so much fun. Uh, Seamus, thank you for joining us yeah, for these yeah, lists. Yeah, yeah, no problem, man. Um, hell of a lot of fun with you guys here. We're going to let the audience go now. Thank you so much to anybody who tuned in for our whole episode here. If you like what we did, you could subscribe to us at patreon.com slash mudville or go check out our brand new website, mudvillepod.com. We're bringing so much content to you guys this upcoming week. Tony, you got something here? Yeah, I just want to say we'll see y'all at the cinema. Oh, hell yeah. Love that. All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and we will catch you guys next time.